Battle Line podcast. Very excited to have Hamity Jassim coming on, better known as the Terrorist Whisperer. And uh, as it pans to your camera, when you start talking, I do see that you now have the flag from your American flag store. And it looks, yeah. dude, it looks awesome. Yeah, it looks, it looks sweet. I know. Can you see the, see the Ranger Distinguished Unit insignia, the DUI? Uh, I yeah. know my, my body armor is right there blocking it. Kind no, of. no, no, you can see it perfectly, man. But, but yeah, no, they, they did a good job. And it's really well made. You can always tell stuff that's well made by the weight of it because they're not they're using real wood instead of fabricated. So I picked it up like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I got to find a wood stud to hang it up off on, on there because it's, it's pretty heavy. But yeah, they did a great job. Looks really I good. I bought some uh, 3M like wall hanging thing on here, which is like idiot proof, man. I mean, any, you know, it it's, was not. It's, it's Ranger proof, man. <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. It's idiot proof. As long as it's th as long as you're you're not buying ear protection from 3M, you're pretty good on everything. Just not the ear protection. Don't mess with the 3M ear protection because you'll go deaf. Ask ask a million army army guys about that. They'll tell you. But uh, yeah, I have to check that out. Um, yeah. Go 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 to Walmart here because that's all we got, and um, they go get some 3M stuff and hang it up, or I'll 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 get a stud finder and find a stud and get that thing up there. But it's awesome, no? They did a great job, very 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 well done. Yeah, what I got was made to hang things that I think it says like up to it was like up to forty pounds or something. Like I made sure that it would hang it, and I've had no issues. So yeah, if you like either of our flags check them out youramericanflagstore.com but they're not even a sponsor of this show we just love what they do so getting into someone who actually does sponsor this show as i was telling you tonto uh this past week i've been filling in as producer for mike pesca and i bring this up because uh one of the staff members uh when we you know hopped on our google meet on monday uh mike was like hey how was your weekend and he said He's like, yeah, nah, it's all right. And I turned out like the part of the reason he felt that way is he's like, I'm having a ton of back pain. And I always tell people, I mean, I think first and foremost, you got to start exercising because he yeah. acknowledged himself. He's like, you got to start losing weight, um, get your diet right. But then the third part of that equation is what are you supplementing with? Yeah. And if you're not using the right supplements and if you're just getting some crap that you find on the shelves of, you know, as we said, Walmart or CVS or something, <laughs> you, you do get what you pay for. And and it's important to take the right supplements and, and stuff that's made here in America and stuff that's scientifically proven to work. And that's why we always stand behind Ned. So if you don't have a daily ritual, I know a part of my nightly ritual is taking Ned. A ritual is a daily practice that helps you stay grounded. It's an intentional act where you take a few minutes to reconnect with and take care of yourself. Daily routines are mundane and make you feel stuck in a rut. Daily rituals are meaningful and help you become the person you want to be. Transitioning your life can be as simple as bringing more attention to the things you do every day. So get present, slow down, and check in with your five senses. Think positive, take a deep breath, and say affirmations and connect with your North Star smile and think about what really matters. These products, as I said, are scientifically nature, science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Ned CBD is cold extracted from the world's purest USDA-certified organic hemp plants in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Full transparency, Ned shares third-party lab reports, who farms their products and their extraction process, all right there on their site, Ned CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews 
And I know for me, just that 300 milligram uh, full spectrum hemp is something I take every night, wake up refreshed and ready to take on the next day. I, I, I take it during the day. I wish I'll take it throughout whenever, throughout the day at night. It It's really helped me with my stress levels, of course, and my wife can tell the difference. My my uh, my anxiety that I used to have, which is gone. But, it, you know, it also helps with my inflammation that I have in my guts being a, a UC uh, ulcerative colitis uh, uh, have her, I guess I should say. So uh, it works well. And, and guys, I you know, we can talk about the oil, but don't forget about the relief bomb. The relief bomb is awesome. That stuff, I for all you guys that used to take Tiger Bomb, which is completely unhealthy for you, but it worked. But it did work. The relief bomb that that Ned's made is is better than the Tiger Bomb, but it also is not detrimental to your health. And it did. I just took some yesterday on my shoulder after working out and the pain went away like that. So do both look for the CBD oil, but also if you're an avid workout person, you get out there, you're very active and you get sore muscles all the time. Like I do, then get that relief bomb. It works very, very well. I, I swear by that now too. So net is tremendous. There's not one product they make that isn't fantastic. Yeah, very true. And people might shrug off the the health detriments of Tiger Bomb and stuff like that. But the truth is, there's been I've seen all these news articles out about certain skin, uh, yeah. certain sunblocks where people are getting cancer from them. Yeah. So it's really nothing to be like, hey, I'm just going to use this. I mean, it is important to use natural science backed products that aren't going to have those detrimental effects. So become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with the code BATTLELINE. If you're a first time customer, go to helloned.com slash BATTLELINE or enter BATTLELINE at checkout. That's H E L L O N E D.com slash BATTLELINE to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switches on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dead for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The switch is on. Battle Line Podcast. I didn't mention this at the very top of the show, but check out this shirt. What do you got? Operation oh, cool. Pegasus Jump uh, from our friend Tim Turner. Tim, I've I been saw that. Yeah. I saw that they were, you know, had these shirts for the event. And I was like, that is a fucking cool shirt, man. I yeah. need one of those. I was like, if I donate to Operation Pegasus Jump, can you send me one? And he did. <laughs> and you and I, I think, have gotten lucky with all different types of things from listeners and friends and fans of the show. Cause I got this. And then also our friend Nastasha from, yeah, um, that, uh, from Jig, uh, Jigsaw, Jigsaw Youth, Youth sent me yep. a shirt, sent you a shirt, and, and we appreciate it. We'll and, get her on at some point. Yeah. That, those guys, I, I love because they actually 
they're both those women how dare you i I know (laughs) guys again guy do i have to i'm not going to say anymore i've said too much guys is a gender neutral term on a new york and i'm sure in that are used guys i feel like they would say staten island and natasha i think she is like a jersey shore jersey i think she's yeah they're staten island they're staten island so yeah so it is used guys i'm sure she's freaking gangster (laughs) more gangster than we are but those guys they they rock man i mean they do they're they're old school i remind me old school back like uh the the old alice and change pearl jam but that sort of genre and that's that's why i actually started watching i saw some of their stuff they posted it and uh like wow, these 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 girls, they they freaking are tearing it up, and there's and they play their own instruments and their talent. I mean, that's they're talented. It's not some synthesizer synth vocalization. There, dude, they're straight up. What you see is what you get, and they're they're tearing it up. So yeah, congratulations and thanks for the shirt. That was awesome. Yeah, I got it. Uh, got it a couple of days ago. Awesome, and the flag. So hey, there we go. Got two nice. things. Yep. Yeah, I'll probably wear it on the show at some point. That that's the thing though. New York uh, and has always had a strong music yeah. scene. And, yeah. and whether it's the metal scene or the hardcore scene, that is never going away. So I think sometimes when people are just like, oh, music, what's going on? And they're just listening to like what's being played on, yeah. I don't know, Sirius XM or or even what they're seeing on YouTube. I mean, there will never be a time in New York, whether it's Queens or Brooklyn, every borough has their own scene going yeah. on. And there are bands that you have never heard on radio and they pack out shows. Like I remember for a while there, Doomsday Morning was played on Sirius XM for a little bit and no one really heard of them. But go to a Doomsday Morning show while they were active on Long Island or Brooklyn or, you know, Manhattan. And they packed out fucking shows. They were the heaviest band I've ever heard in my life. Um and yeah, we've always just New York has always had a very strong music scene. Definitely. And I think always will. And, and imagine you say that since we the last post, we referenced the Beastie Boys, too. So there you yes, go. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, love Beastie a, Boys. Yeah, that's, that's an, that hip hop scene back in the East Coast back in that time. That was when I was growing up. That was when I was in high school. You know, that that was the East Coast was tremendous. And the Beastie Boys were Def Jam and all that were, were a huge part of that. So, you no, you're right, dude. Can I tell you something regarding the Beastie Boys that I never mentioned, but you bring it up. And I think this goes to why people need to have more civil uh, dialogue online. And I think when people jump down people's throats, they, you know, I'll I'll get into the story. But basically, there was some writer who put out an article that said the Beastie Boys were like the first to have cultural appropriation. I tweeted this guy. And I was like, dude, I feel like the Beastie Boys were the most authentic group. Yeah. I, I feel like you have it wrong in this one. But I didn't say like, fuck you, you're an <laughs> asshole. So and I said, I'm not going to read the whole article because it's behind a paywall. And I'm not, you know, honestly, yeah. I'm not paying to read this article. But I think you have something wrong here. He private messaged me and he was like, hey, here's the whole article. And he's like, I just want to let you know, I'm kind of poking fun at the whole cultural appropriation thing. And, and he's like, if you read it, I think you'll get my gist of the article. And that's why I just feel like people just react quickly before, because then I was like, oh, you know, I ended up following this guy. He followed me. And I think people are too quick to just shut people down because they see the headline and you know and you know what i'm sure as a writer he's like this headline is going to get clicks so let me be well, a little you do, you, we, we kind of do the same thing it's the clickbait sort of thing you get you get but you're you're right if you don't have the ability to see what the entire thing is you, you can have the wrong interpretation that's why te- even texting you and i even had but she's what three years ago it's like a few texts are like what that motherfucker say to me wait what did that motherfucker say to me and then we called each other and it was just completely we're way off the course of what we're at, you know, because, but you get misinterpretation because of the blurb. 
And that's yeah. where, yeah, that's the problem, man, is that we have that now, we have that society, but we also, the, the media and social media, they get that, they understand that, and they 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 maximize it for their profits, even though it's, it, you know, most of it is just hate and immorality and, and the people degradating each other. Did I say that right? If I didn't, guys, you'll fix it later, fix it for me. But uh, it's, 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 it's awful. But I'm glad you're saying that because you're right. You're spot on. And there, if people would just, we always say this, if people would just talk to each other, but I, I think we've been saying that for years. We're just going to have to keep saying it until eventually people do start talking to each other, not just catching the headline or catching the first few words and going, oh, that motherfucker, what did he mean? Uh, he didn't really mean anything bad about it. Why don't you go talk to him about it? And just like he did. So I say, I like that story. Cause I thought you were going, see, that's how I was already. I'm already going to half, half empty. I'm going, Oh my gosh, here we go. He's going to have, it was going down the wrong path where this guy's going to scream and yell at him. And, but now nah, I went the other way, which, which is great. I'm glad you did that, man. Half full. That's a, it's half full. And it shows some positivity that they're still. Yeah. Out there. And if I would have been quick to react and said, fuck yeah. you, whatever, he would have blocked me and been like, <laughs> yeah. this guy's an asshole. And, and then instead he was like, no, no, no. I saw that you were coming, you weren't coming at me in that type of way. And that's why I wanted to send you the article. So anyway, it was just funny because you mentioned the beastie boys, but get getting into some news here, man. Um, and by did you just freeze on me? Are you there? No, I see. Yeah, right, sorry about that, brother. No, we're we're good. Um, this is a major piece of news here that I, of course, is being underreported because I feel like this past week we're only talking about one story, and I feel like this is of major importance. Of course, uh, this was originally just posted from the U.S. Army Fort Benning uh, yeah. Facebook, and they wrote, "It was it is with a heavy heart that we announced the death of Second Lieutenant Evan Evan Fitzgibbon and Staff Sergeant George Tabor." Uh, during a ranger school weather-induced training held uh, August 9th at Yona Mountain near uh, Delonga, Georgia. Am I saying De it right? Del Delonica. Delonica, Delonica, Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, Camp Merrill. Five ranger candidates. And this is so crazy. I know people are like, wow, this is a tragedy. Was struck by a falling tree. Yeah. Fitzgibbon and Tabor were pronounced deceased at the hospital. Three other candidates were injured in the incident. Two were treated for non-life-threatening injuries, and one remains in sta uh, stable under medical care. Fitzgibbon was an infantry officer assigned to the Infantry Basic Officer Leader Course, the yep. 199th Infantry Leader Brigade in Fort Benning, Georgia. He was a graduate of West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, and commissioned in May of 2021. Tabor was a Special Forces Medical Sergeant assigned to the 7th Special Forces Group, Eglin Air Force Base, Florida. He had served in the Army since his enlistment in March of 2017. Our heartfelt thoughts and prayers are with the families, friends, and leadership of these two outstanding leaders who unexpectedly lost their lives in the pursuit of excellence. In this past year, we've covered a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I mean, too many, of course, training deaths. And this one is just such a freak accident struck by a tree oh, too fatally. Yeah, when well, Ranger School is no joke, guys. Delonica uh, is, is, to me, was probably the hardest phase out of Ranger School. Mountain phase is the hardest phase. But the weather, people realize, you know, you're not eating, you're not sleeping, but you're out in the elements, too. You're, there's no protection out there. There's no cabin you can run to. There's no... There's no, you know, little piece of a of, uh, little building you can run to and hide in. So uh, when the weather hits, you have to endure it. And when they say weather hold, there must have been a huge wind and thunderstorm. And you just the safest thing you can do really is just stay put because you're out in the open most of the time or you're surrounded by a ton of 100 foot trees. And now you got a lightning storm. So what do you do? Well, you stay put. Actually, you just get on your toes. You stay put. You cover yourself with your poncho liner and you hope that no lightning or 
a tree falls over and hits you, which, yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's sad, but that's, it, that's, that's ranger school. I, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it because you don't want anybody ever dying in training, but I, I, I'm sure, and I know there'll probably be an investigation, but I'm sure the RIs did everything that they were supposed to do based off their risk assessments that you do at every training phase that you do at ranger school or training in general, there's risk assessments that you go through to see if it's safe enough to do the training. And I'm sure they did everything correct. And it was just, dude, there's trees everywhere out in mountain phase. It's it, you're in North Georgia. That's. And so I hope it stays where it is. And we just, you know, give prayers to the soldiers, give prayers to those that passed. Uh, and then also prayers for the recovery of those that were injured. I hope it doesn't get to a point where it turns into another wokeness. Well, my gosh, whose fault is this sort of, because it's, it's not anybody's fault. It, whose fault is it? It's the tree's fault what can you do? It's just how it is. And I'll give you a story. I was going to tell you, Florida yeah. phase in, in Eglin, we're going through swamp phase, last phase. And we had a freak storm come through. It was weird. It got hot and it got cold. And you know what that happens? If you're in the Midwest, you know what that means. That means thunderstorms and a tornado is probably on its way. And, and I remember <laughs> it was late at night and we were tired. I was towards the end of ranger training. I'm about done. I got about a week left. And we're doing our, our 13 day field exercise or 12 day field exercise. And they told us to dig our holes. So we dig our fighting positions with three foot holes. We're digging the ground. And they told us just to get low. I mean, they said, just you guys get as low as you can. And um, and then I remember I remember getting low and then looking up and seeing the RIs gone. I couldn't see one of them. I'm like, holy shit, those guys ditched us. But but I don't know if they did or not. So let's not beat up the RIs. But I do remember a storm coming through and it, we found out later it was just one of those things. And it was in November, which was weird, that an EF1 tornado passed through our our, our training site. And yeah, I remember I, I was scared shitless. I mean, because there's just tree. I mean, that's you're, you're waiting for a tree to come down. And I'm sure if we would have been in North Georgia, it would have. We're not. We're in Flor North Florida. So, you know, it's pine trees and, and cypress trees that can stand hurricanes. So they're not coming down. But, you know, that was part of the training. Nobody said a word when it passed through. We got up the next morning. Nobody got any sleep. So what? We didn't get sleep anyway. And we continued on with the field exercise. But that's what I'm saying. It, that stuff happens. So honestly, to say that only to see that or only somebody passes and God, I don't, I don't want to be I'm not trying to be uh, an asshole about this, but to see that only a person dies you know, every once in a while, I know that sounds terrible, but it's, it's training. It's truth. It's ranger school. It's special operations. Um, to me is honestly, it's a miracle, but it says in a testament to how safe our eyes and ranger training command, RTB ranger training brigade takes the, you know, takes the, the, the welfare of the students because brother, it's, it's, it's an arduous course, man. And, and you've got hypothermia or you've got heat exhaustion. You've got the weather elements, you've got you got you got freaking Jake the Snake out there. You got Diamondbacks, Copperheads, water moccasins. When you go into Florida or even some parts of Benning during the summer, you've got alligators. You know, you've got the Florida alligator, the American alligator out there. Um, you've got cliffs. You, I mean, you've got all sorts of stuff out there. And you know, I think we've you know, there's been 15 deaths at Ranger School oh, since its inception, and that was a long time ago. As I don't even know really it's been that I, it okay. may not even be that many. It's been like maybe. Well, I know what when I went through in '95, right before I went through, uh, we had we had uh, five died due to hypothermia. Or I'm just died. surprised that it would be that low because of the fact that since this show, I mean, we've we've reported on 
Marines dying in basic training and, and oh, I, I'm, dying no, in- no, I'm talking about uh, Ranger school, just Ranger school. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Not, not the entire, no, no, I'm no, but been- I just mean when you think about how much we've reported on this type of stuff in three years, I'm, I would, I would have thought it would have been a little bigger. No, right. Ranger school, they do take their safety seriously. And, you know, with the advent of the UH 60, the Black Hawk helicopter and how good, medical flight teams are dust off we call them dust offs the the helicopter medical teams that can get in anywhere you know whenever there was a bite or somebody you know or there was a chance of hypothermia after 1995 this is where they learned their lesson after those those ranger students died in florida's phase in the spring of hypothermia they died in 70 degree weather if hypothermia that just shows you how awful hypothermia can be but they didn't have helicopters to get in there and get them out to get them to uh, you know emergency care facility. They had to use deuce and a half or trucks, which took forever because they had to drive them in. Well, now with the Blackhawks always on standby in these places that they can helo in and helo out, um, you know, get them to a, a landing zone and, and get them out, HO, a helicopter landing zone, HOZ, and get them out. You know, that's increased the chances of somebody's injured of, of them of them living. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that with guys, dumbass guys that have put blasting caps in their mouth and bit down on them to tighten them on the deck cord and blew their face. Uh, there's horrific. Every Ranger student seen the horrific picture of the one Ranger student who blew half his face off, you know, setting up a detonator with a blasting cap and debt wire, a debt cord. And, and you don't do that. You don't put pressure on it. That's what ha- that's how it causes the explosion. But. He lit, he saved. He was saved because they got a helo in there. They evac'd him out and they actually rebuilt his face. So um, what I say is that, you know, that's that says something for how important safety is for any student going through any course, whether it be ranger school, whether it be just basic training, whether it be airborne school. Uh, they want to push people to the limits. But there's not one commander that I ever had that said, hey, let's see if we can kill somebody in training. It's that we don't want any accidents in training. We need to do everything we can to minimize that chance of there being an accident, a death or a severe injury. And they took that seriously. And as a leader myself in the military, it was my job to assess certain certain things that I had to do. So I had to make sure that it passed those risk assessments so we could do the training. And it was very hard. It was very tough to do. So. Yeah, I, I prayers to those guys, prayers to especially the guy coming out of Ibolak. He was a brand new lieutenant. If you, coming out of Ibolak with the infantry basic officers leader course, used to be called IOBC, infantry officers basic course when I went through it. Um, he was brand new. He just got out of West Point. He hadn't been assigned to a unit. I mean, he's he's basically just finishing up his schooling and was going to probably be sent to a unit to take over his first platoon. And that sucks. That really does, because he hadn't even had a chance to run a platoon yet. But again, I read this backstory on him, which he sent to me, and it sounded like he was doing what he wanted to do. It sounded like West Point was what he wanted to do, and, and he had loved every minute of it. So after reading that, that still makes me feel good, even even though when a person passes away. It's hard to, uh, yeah, it's hard to talk about, especially when you can remember the things that kind of tie into what he was doing. And I did the same stuff aside from the West Point stuff. Um, it, 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 you can see that he was doing where he, he was where he wanted to be at that point in life. And, um, you know, I had a prayer that I used to read all the time when I would deploy all the time for the tenure. I read it every morning that I was gone on deployment. And I remember when I read it, it's a prayer before battle, a ranger buddy who gave it to me. And I think I've talked about a little bit of this before on a show, but it said, if I die in this battlefield, the day may I die at peace with you. 
And it was the end of the prayer. That wasn't the entire prayer, but it was called a prayer before battle. And I read it every morning and it made me realize that, you know, life is fleeting, but enjoy every minute of it. And wherever you're at that point in time, that's where God wants you. So, so, so don't be miserable. You, you enjoy it, take it all in. And so when I read the story that you sent me about this guy, that's what I thought. I was like, well, you know what? I know he didn't want to die. He wasn't planning on dying, but he was where God wanted him to be. And you could tell that's where he wanted to be because of his path in life. And, and so I, I, I don't think he died in vain. I, I don't, yeah. I, and I don't think the, the SF sergeant, the E7, that was an 18 Delta bad. That's a bad motherfucker right there. I don't think he died in vain either. They, 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 I'm sure they helped many people along the way before their passing. And, and, um, you know, God bless them. And, and, you know, I, 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 that's just, again, another testament to how difficult Ranger school is and how dangerous it can be amongst the other training and vetting schools out there. But it, it kind of has to be that way, brother. And weather's weather. You just, you can't do nothing about the weather and, and, and weather. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you don't when you're out there in a freak thunderstorm or tornado or hurricane or flood. And, uh, Mother Nature is no joke. You know, you, you can beat being, you can beat bullets sometimes, but you can't beat Mother Nature, and Mother Nature still rules. So I, I'm going in circles, but I, I just want to say prayers to that guy in Ranger School, who's candidates that kept going, keep pushing on, and finish the finish the training, and for his parents and their parents and their family members, bless them, please. God bless prayers to you as well. But but know that I, I guarantee you they they were doing what they what they wanted to be doing in their career, not necessarily freezing and starving and not sleeping, but they were at a place that they wanted to get better. And Ranger school is one of those places that it's the premier leadership and leadership school in the country. So it's that for a reason, but danger is part of it. So it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that, we have a great interview coming up. If you guys are familiar with the book, The Terrorist Whisperer, or the the podcast, the documentary, I mean, this guy has done so much stuff. He's been on so many other shows, you know, and just finding my research, he's he really was a great asset to uh, to American, to basically American intelligence. But before we get into that, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact, which is their trademark in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring they receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Also available, of course, on FSM.com. Yeah. And if you're buying in bulk, that 15% off that we have is going to save you a lot. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, use our exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. And uh, yeah, I got to check out the uh, the Fort Scott facility in Kansas when I visited Chris, and it is awesome. I hope to be back soon. Yep. I know Jason Pickle last week was saying he would love to check it out as a shooter. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll set something up soon. Yep. So Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. Once again, guys, if you're looking to buy ammo, look no further than FSM.com and yep. promo code Battleline. And as we're talking about ammo, 
the best night vision on the planet is Photonis, and we are blessed to have them as a sponsor. Now you can have the superpower to see in the dark with the Viper Binocular Night Vision System by Photonis Defense. This is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonis Defense Solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and enthusiasts can rely on the Photonis Defense Viper Binocular to be the master of darkness, which is their trademark. The new Viper Binocular system carries the same features and benefits as the Photonis Defense Viper Monocular with the ruggedized body and harnesses the power of the echo intensifier tubes, giving you sharper images, reduced halo, and industry-leading ultra-fast auto-gating across the range of dynamic operating conditions. Visit PhotonisDefense.com. P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S defense.com for more information. Also, they are new to Instagram. They uh, they could use some followers on there because they're yeah. just getting started. So even if you're not looking to buy right now, but you just want to learn more, follow those guys. Just at Photonis Defense, P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S defense. Um, if you're on Instagram, give them a follow and you'll see all the great stuff that they're up to. Um, or, of course, look for Photonis Defense product options from your night vision dealer. That's PhotonisDefense.com. This is something that you use regularly and oh, yeah. you even do classes on. Well, we'll do one, actually, another one here at the end of November. But the best ammo and the best night vision in the country by far. I mean, you're doing yourself a disservice, especially if you're a, a law enforcement agency, you're a procurement officer, you're in the DOD, your DOS, uh, you know, agency, anything like that. Guys, you want to have your guys come back alive. Photonis Defense and Fort Scott Munitions, they're the best by far. There's nothing even close to the ammunition or the night vision out there than those two. And yeah, Photonis Defense, the just believe the detail that you just can't get any better than that. I, I wish, I, I mean, I had pretty good night vision that night in Benghazi. I, man, I wish I would have had that Photonis Defense night vision. I, I could have seen their smiles before I popped them in the face so <laughs> but that being said guys photonis is tremendous and they're a great company and they're run by operators you know phil otto who was former grs marine and then they've got a navy seal two couple navy seals over there one served with roan i don't want to give his name out right now because i don't know if he wants me to but uh, they, they're rep by operators that actually have done the job downrange so they know what they're looking for and for scott munitions guys but i tremendous. think we could say Ju justin sheehan's been on the show and he's talked to uh, justin time, so. yeah there you yeah. go there justin so we're okay doing that you know that's why i have ian here he's he always is checking me but we tremendous. spoke about it on the show yeah, no. so i don't think it's a <laughs> secret i mean but justin sorry buddy um but guys tremendous stuff just you can't go wrong with either give them a try and you're gonna be extremely happy with either the ammunition or the night vision tremendous stuff so joining us on the podcast is a guy who is the coolest looking studio i've ever seen on the <laughs> podcast uh we didn't have video at the time i guess so you would say it rivals um oh who am i thinking of now who had the guns on the wall of john bartolo oh Bartolo's, but i mean yeah. yours is very much your own thing so hamity yeah. jasim better known of course as the terrorist whisperer imprisoned under saddam hussein yeah. in iraq and then served in the newly formed iraqi army after operation iraqi freedom and then in 2005 you were recruited by u.s intelligence and you've done so much stuff since then i mean the terrorist whisperer the story of the pro-american the book 
which then became a documentary. And then, of course, as people watching video could see from the studio, you also have your own podcast, The Black Sight Show. And you are a guy, Chris, has been saying we've had that we have to have on probably since the inception of the show. And we're we're excited to find out. Yeah, and I'm sorry, man. And he even yelled at me on Instagram. He goes, when the fuck are you going to have me on the show? And I completely <laughs> forgot it. It's like, yeah, sorry, brother. I completely spaced it. So yeah, no worries. It's, no it's awesome. That, and I hope, my friend, I hope you're doing well, man. It's Thank you, guys. A, it's, it's a pleasure. I don't think we've talked. You know, we, we, we got close for about four or five years ago. And then we yeah. just kind of did our own thing so it's, it's great having you on and you look dude you look healthy you look good thank you man. thank yeah. you thank you so, much so, appreciate it thank you brother and coming you. on um, hey tell tell people just so they have a background i i think just i i don't think we're even going to be able to scratch the surface of your experience and your stories so let's just start at the beginning man just tell people about yourself for those that don't know you um and then you know your experience under i think just initially even under saddam that I, those stories that you had for me were amazing uh, just yeah. just living and growing up in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was in, you know was in power and and then you're 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 basically being being a literally a rebel against Saddam and 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 that part of your life as well so brother this is your show take it over man thank, thank you thank you very much for having me guys it's an honor being here with you guys and uh, it's a great to catch up with you after all these years since our speaking events uh yeah. worlds and everything <laughs> we have been through um yeah, I, I, you know, growing up in Iraq, you can never compare it to what what's like growing up in America, right? Because now I have a child of my own yeah. and I get to see them living completely 100% the opposite of what my life used to be, right? Uh, I mean, my daughter is nine years old today wow. and four, wow. year, four years younger than her age when I was five, I was being shot at at five years old where... Most five years old here go to Toys and R Us, buy a gun, have fun, enjoy their <laughs> life. And it's, a, you know, life in Iraq was completely different because we were at war since 1980 uh, against Iran until about 1988. So I was born in a war zone, uh, got to see it. It was part of my natural environment. War was just your reality every single day. And every time the war took a different phase, it just got uglier and uglier. I mean, the war against Iran was in the front lines and the borders. You really didn't get to see much in the cities growing up until about desert storm hit. And that's when the American troops entered Iraq. And that's when you really started seeing conventional warfare right in the front of your own front front steps uh, in front of your house. So life was extremely difficult. However, my age was, I was really young at the time. I couldn't process the political aspects of things or what, what life was really like. Uh, Perhaps, to me, you know, as a child growing up in that environment, you feel there is an enemy attacking you and you don't know why they're attacking you. You feel that they really are interested in the in the little piece of sand you have in front of your house. And that's far away from the truth. The truth was you were living under a very crazy uh, dictatorship regime that um, was was horrible. But the older you get, you start getting to know about the government that's controlling you. And I guess. Things didn't make sense to me growing up as a child um, until I actually it was about the age of 12 years old when I actually went to a prison, um, when I got sure. detained and went to a Saddam prison. And that's really was the biggest change or the biggest turnaround in my whole in well, you my were, life. You were 12? You were, 12 I, years old. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Brother, I, what when you're growing up and you saw all that, 
um, you know, America is supposed to be the enemy. America is, how did you, we heard that just American troops being an American, there was a lot of that out there. And I know that was a lot of the propaganda. It was to help start the extremists and start people standing yeah. up and fighting Americans coming in. How did you not get into that? How did you stay out of that? Was your, was your family, what did they say? Hey, the Americans are good. The dictator's bad. Was uh, it always? Uh, it was, honestly, I didn't know the difference, Chris. Like okay. I, I didn't know the difference, you know, in Iraq at the time, you went to school and we had two, literally two classes we had to take. One of them was called nationalism. And that one of them was a nationalism. And you really read about the Bath Party history. Of course, they told you the good side of the yeah. Bath Party. They never told you <laughs> like how these these how these criminals inspired by a communist uh, party. And, you know, many people in the world, when they hear about Saddam or the Bath Party, or they'd be like, oh, you know, Saddam was a good guy. He kept terrorists out. They don't realize the Ba'ath Party was extremely inspired by Stalin. Right. Saddam himself read every single book Stalin uh, ever wrote. And Saddam actually executed exactly how Stalin executed his own generals. Saddam did it in 1980s and then in the 80s against his own generals on the Iran-Iraq war. Saddam literally implemented an experiment of Stalin in Iraq. And... Okay. This is the world you actually lived in. And uh, and at the time, you really didn't know the difference, right? It thinks dumb doesn't make any sense to you. And I had no idea where really things were until I actually went to prison in age 12. And that's when I realized how vicious this regime is. Why did you? Why did I, they send you to prison? I'm sorry. Yeah, go that, ahead. I, no, I was, I was wondering this. I was like, I have to hear how. I mean, because it's so foreign to us that a 12 year old winds yeah. up in prison. It, it doesn't make it's it's just incomprehensible. Yeah, what's the story behind that, brother? I mean, if, when you think about a regime like Saddam Hussein, I mean, a 12 year old, that is absolutely nothing uh, to what they have done in their crimes. You know, they have killed babies who are not even born yet. They have done things that are, you know, you would not be able to hear. But when my I walked out of middle school at age 12 and I was going home. And at the time I really have not had encountered with encounters with Bath Party members, which is like Saddam political party. And when yeah. we talk about political parties, it's not like we're talking about Republican and Democrats in the yeah. United States, but, but political party down there, we have one party and we have <laughs> one candidate that was Saddam Hussein. And the party had so much power that if they tell you to jump, you jump. And at a 12 year old punk who didn't know the difference, there was something different about a bath party member. They dress differently. They sound differently. And they're a lot cleaner than the people they walk around. So you have the ability. Any normal citizen or average citizen will be able to, to tell about a bath party member about a mile ago. I didn't have that filter because I was a 12 year old. I didn't understand the difference. So when I got pulled over by three police officers at the time pulled wait pulled over are you driving no 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 like it's oh. just I, i'm i'm walking okay i was like holy but i mean not that i haven't yeah. seen a 12 year old drive down the road on a, i have, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I have okay so like i got stopped and um the three police officers the one thing i would never forget is two didn't look as clean and sharp one looked absolutely completely different sounded completely different he dressed differently his badges on the uniform was differently and it clearly he was the leader of that crew and he said to me he said do you have any money in your pocket and it was a weird question i kind of felt like okay well 
what if I have money? Like, what do you want to do with my money? It's my money. Like, what, what do you, you're, you're supposed yeah. to be the police. You're the, they're there to protect the people. And the norm was if they ask you what you have in your pocket, they usually take it and you walk away and you don't say anything. So I had about what equals 600 dinners yeah. at the time. I kept having it in my wallet, having it in my socks, hoping that I don't get stolen. My wallet gets stolen or anything. And at the time, I was collecting money over holidays, Eids and all these holidays we have down there, the Muslim holidays, to buy myself a shoe. And that was the whole goal. And he uh, got out of the car and searched me, asked me to turn around where he can search me. And he searched me and he found my wallet. And he opened it and he saw there was money in it. So I turned around and I tried to take my wallet back yeah. and he ended up slapping me when he slapped me. He was a six foot tall. I was a 12 year old little guy, skinny that live in under sanctions. Yeah. Don't not fed. Well, <laughs> I fell on the ground and I cursed him. This was a big deal in our culture. If you curse somebody and with a thing and I, I cursed him on his mom and his sister and he, he grabbed me from my, uh, from my collar. He was bigger than me, a lot stronger they opened the back door of that police patrol and they threw me inside. So I literally didn't walk or sit in that chair properly. I got thrown all the way to the other side of the, of the patrol and the two other gods sat right next to me. So they got in the car and everything I was going through at the time, you know, I kind of felt I was in, in deep shit and deep trouble. And I felt like in my heart, look, at the end of the day, he took my money. He hit me like, this could be a lesson learned. I could get beat up down the road and go home. And I will never forget the car kept driving. And about 20 minutes, I, I obviously drove out of my, where my neighborhood where I lived in that town. I was out of that town at that point. And I went in and, and uh, I will never forget the, the conversation that went on between one of the guys that was sitting in my left and him sitting in the front. And the guy on my left was like around in his 50s. And he started talking to him to the to the bath party member who was sitting in the front. And he said, hey, he's just a child. You took his money. You slapped him. Just take him out of the car, beat him up and let him go. And he turned around and he said, if you keep talking, I'm going to throw you. I'm throwing him tonight. Wow. And the 50 year old guy next to me went silent. So it drove about 45 minutes. I got to the front gate of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior, which I have never seen before in my whole life. I have seen the, the checkpoint, but, you know, average citizens of that regime, we're not allowed to look what's behind. You don't know what's really behind that checkpoint. And once I passed the guard, that was my first time in my life seeing what's really behind that checkpoint. And I drove about like they drove about a mile and a half. And I actually saw the Ministry of Interior to my left. And I've never seen this part of, of the country before. This is not where an average any citizen can drive by. This is completely a secluded area. And he took a right to what's looked like a compound. And all I remember from it is just high walls and a wow. slide gate. And the slide gate opened and I went inside and... um. And the first thing that I remember from looking in the car, there were cages and there was darkness behind the cages. I didn't see what it looked like. It actually reminded me of the zoo in Baghdad. And I just looked and I'm like, what is this? Like, what, what's this place? Is it like a it looked like a zoo cage or a butcher store of some sort? And um, 
And it was just a compound blocked by these big walls and towers. And you couldn't really tell what's inside. And he got out of the car, went into the room. And I stayed in the car. I was handcuffed and sitting in the car. And about 20 minutes, half an hour, he came over, opened the door. They got me out. And they walked me to a table where he was sitting on it. And it looked like he was already, he was already actually writing a report. And he pushed the paper to me across the table. I was still handcuffed to the front of my, my body. He gave me a pen and he said, sign. And the, the whole report was written like, it's a long hall handwritten report. I have no idea what's in it. I only read the first sentence that stated I was an enemy of the state and I tried to assassinate a bath party while on duty. Wow. <laughs> and I was asked to sign. And I'm looking, there are guards with actually sticks look like a baseball yeah. bats in every corner. I'm terrified. And I signed it. I immediately signed it. And I was hoping that that was it. I'll, I'll go home. And immediately they took me to the, to the side of the prison where the cages were. And I ended up being walking And immediately when they walked me in, I basically became in the other side of the, of the fence. And I saw what looked like all concrete. And there was one little window, maybe the size of your hands. Yeah. small window and there was a metal gate they opened the metal gate and they threw me inside and it was a prison with about 500 people in it um it's like a, a war house there was no rooms or anything it's just a complete flat concrete floor and there's about 500 people inside and i just got thrown and pushed right inside and sat there i was i was terrified um that everybody there was there older than me i was a kid um People were afraid to talk to me because they thought I was involved in some serious uh, stuff to be there. And until about one of the prisoners, um, um, when they called my name, actually, after half an hour, they called my name and I thought I was going to go home. And I was like, this is it. They try to scare me. Half an hour. I'm going home. So I get up and I have my books in my hands. Like literally, I, didn't, I couldn't afford to have a backpack. I had like literally books wrapped up in my hand, four or five books. Yeah. And one of the prisoners tapped on my shoulders and he just looked at me and he said, hey, he said, scream as hard as you can where your voice will bother them or they won't let you go. And I didn't know what that meant. I couldn't process it. I said, what do you mean scream? Like I, they're calling me to go. And when I got out of the room, I got taken to the opposite side, which not where the side I came from. And. There was a room there that's probably the size of a bathroom. I'm sure Chris remember what Iraqi bathrooms look like. They're small. <laughs> and they uh, had chains coming from the ceiling. Wow. And it looked like really like a butcher <clears throat> store. And the whole room was painted red. Once they closed that door, everything you're looking at is completely red with a dim light. And I couldn't understand what this was. And... I was hanged from my legs upside down wow, from the ankles and I start getting beaten and hit by basically what it is. It's a hose, like a water hose yeah. with a stick inside of it. Yeah. And the, the kicks were not just only to my back, it was actually to the back of my head. So I passed out within like maybe minutes. I was being talking to and I couldn't understand the, the words they were saying to me. They were actually asking me what a group I am with. And I had no idea what the name of the resistance were. I had no idea what the group's names are. 
I really didn't know anything. I didn't know what to answer. I was waiting for them to give me something so I can say, yes, I'm part of this. So the beating stops. And, and I got thrown back into prison. Later on in life, I found out this actually torture technique they have taken out of an old Roman torture book that the Iraqi government has purchased wow. and implemented these torture techniques. So the red was to psychologically breaks you down. Yeah. And whatever confession they'll put in your hands, you will absolutely sign on it. They'll once you go into that prison, you sign in all these papers. You meet so basically what it was called, it was called the the processing prison. It's where they process you, they get your confessions out, you get labeled as an enemy of the state, and then you get sent to, to be to, to trial to meet Awad al Bender, who was Saddam um Supreme uh, Bath Party Supreme Judge. This individual would separate people by a thousand people, separate them by 500 each, and will basically flip a quarter and decide that 500 get executed immediately and 500 go to underground prison. So there was no trial. There is no, there's no way of knowing you were safe. Yeah. Uh, you were innocent or not. Uh, you, you're just going to either, whatever this guy's going to decide that day, that's what your destiny was. So I spent, long story short, I spent about four weeks in there. Wow. Um, Do, does your family know that you're in there This is while this is going so, on? Do they just... So that's that's where the story's coming, is the, three, the, the 300 dinars that I have kept in my socks the whole time has really saved my life. Um, I gave this to one of the prisoners the night, the first night when I was brought back from torture room. And he had a guard in the middle of the night. So it was about like a 1230 at night, 130 in the morning. Uh, one of the guards who actually cleaned the it cleaned the the commander of the prison office. This guy, um, the guard has a, the the commander has a landline phone, and the guard would take money from the prisoners, or if they have uh, money, if they have any kind of thing they can make him, or handmade things they can give him, he'll make a phone call. So they took the money, they gave it to the guard, and he called, he asked me for my family landline number. And at the time, I'm praying that my family was not outside of the house looking for me. Yeah. And somebody would answer the phone. And luckily, he went there, made the phone call. My brother, my older brother, answered the phone. And he just told him, look, this is where your brother is. I, you, didn't hear, you didn't hear me telling you this. And that's all I can tell you and hang the phone. So my family knew what prison that I was in. And they immediately came in and met with the commander of the prison. I didn't know this was going on on the outside. And the commander of the prison said, well, if you guys will bring me extra amount of money, I will smash the reports. I will end the processing and I'll let you take him out of here. By next week, if I don't have the money here in my office, this his papers are sending out and then he will be transferred on a prison truck to trial and that's where most likely he will not be around or you would never see him again so my family brought the money i didn't know this was happening in the outside i'm sitting there in this prison giving confessions that i am the most dangerous killer in the world at a tw at age 12 wow and i come out um and i get asked out and I thought usually I'm going to the left side where the, the, the torture rooms are or where the, the interrogation room. And this time, actually, I got taken to the right side. 
where I came from at the beginning of entering that prison. So when I got taken to the right side, I didn't know what was happening in the in the outside if my family knew where I was. None of that was privileged to me. And in uh, the way the prisoners looked at me, I just felt this this was it. I thought like that was that was my death, that I was going to get taken to outside of that uh, little area outside of the cages and somehow I might get shot. Sure. Uh, I might. And I just thought it was it. And, and it, in a way, I was relieved because the torture and the beating and everything I was going through, the, the adults couldn't endure that. Did you and, have to, Hamadi, yeah. did you have to, was that a regular thing with the beatings? Or once you signed and gave your confession, they just let you and you stood in the in the holding area? Oh, that was they, a regular thing. It was on schedule. Yeah, yeah, it was on wow. schedule. You have every day or and then every two days and they bring you back and they enhance the confessions. And at the time, I had no idea what I was being told. Sure. I, I was agreeing with the interrogator. And the one thing I never forgot is there was a, a bald man, probably in his 60s, in that prison as a, as a prisoner. And I will never forget that the man, the, the one scene from that prison is the man had a lighter. And the, the lighter, he would turn it on and he will put it on his forehead. And I had no idea why this person was doing that. Until about um, one of the prisoners have said to me that this person actually came to prison a normal person. He came to prison a, a normal person. He has lost his brain. Yeah. And he's been here for like years. Wow. And all he does, he would take this basically lighter and he would turn it all around his head. And I was amazed in my head. I was amazed is how this person actually how is this person actually not feeling the heat of the lighter and i was just kind of like taken back into what i've seen and when i got taken to that right side of the prison i I was uh i was done at that point i I didn't want to do anything i don't want to say anything and i was told to look down and i will never forget is i can feel the slide gate that i came that i came from was right in front of me but i couldn't look at it I'm ordered to look down and I was handcuffed to the back and I started feeling the key of the handcuffs come, come through my arms. And he opened my handcuff. He opened it. And uh, someone came close to my ears and said, walk and do not look behind. And I walked literally. And as soon as I walked, they opened the slide gate and I saw my dad. Ah. Literally, that was it. And I couldn't look behind. And part of me is like still processing is that the prisoners who were there with me, I kind of have an attachment with them. And I was looking like, am, am I leaving out of this place? Is this is all it? And does the people know inside that I'm actually leaving, that I'm not actually getting shot at? or? And uh, I just walked out of that door and I was in a, in a shocking moment. I, I didn't say anything to my dad. I didn't say a word. Uh-huh. I really saw my dad. My dad got, put me in the car and I drove away, got home. I was taken to a doctor to treat my wounds in my bag. Um, I was hit to the head multiple, multiple times. The first person I talked to was my mother. 
And I just couldn't really tell them what I what I saw in there. Were, were they were they it. at the time like angry with you for you know speaking back yeah. to a Bath Party member? Oh, my dad like, was. Yeah, my dad was, and I was uh, I was um, I just didn't know what to tell my dad at the time. You know, like I just didn't know what to say to him. He was mad, and what they said to me is, "Here's here's uh, six hundred Iraqi dinars. Keep him in your pocket." And if anybody asks you anything again, you give him this you money him and you do not money. say a word. Yeah. And that's what I was told. And I went back to school about three days after. And I had no interest in any, in any of my school. I yeah. went from being an A student, uh, being so good at chemistry and physiology and, and in English, I just didn't care. I failed everything, including including Islamic religion. And I just didn't care. And I really didn't. I I was just showing up in there. And most of my teachers were actually members of the back party. And I just sat in there and I just looked at my teachers. And truly, all I wanted to do to my teachers is get up and kill them. Do you, do you think they knew the atrocities? Because I think like when people think of Nazi Germany, like there's yeah. probably Nazi soldiers who didn't know the extent of how bad things were, yeah. even if they were a member of that regime. I'm just what, you know, does a teacher know that this is what they're oh, they doing do. to 12 year olds? Oh, they do. They're, they're well aware of it. They're well aware of it. And, and some of them, some of them really, when the regime ordered them to do things, they do it out of excitement. They're not forced to do it. It's Some sad. of them enjoy what they do. Well, it's control. I, that's what I, I, you understand, even understand, and we don't go to the, the politicians as far as that extent here, at least as far as people know, but it's, it always is about control, brother. You know that it's yeah. always, it's about it's being, being able to control and be able to do whatever you want and exert your will on someone else. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's, I think uh, the veterans that went over for many, many years and, and that's what we saw and experienced and we understood that's that's why we always say that savages man with yeah. the terrorists it's like because it's control it always is it's it's and it's a detriment it is a derogatory term but it was supposed to it, we meant it that way because it was holy shit this person has no feeling for humanity at all they just want to they just want to exert their their control over someone else and, and yeah and i and again they have done worse like oh yeah. what they have done to me is compare nothing to what they have done to others yeah. They executed, yeah. they executed women that were pregnant, yeah. who begged, who pegged just to give birth before they get executed, and they wouldn't. They have done things that will blow your mind. And at that time, I just didn't care really about life in general. I didn't do much. I failed my school. I basically got transferred from a day school to night school because I failed everything, and I didn't really have any actions in my life you can say until about when 2003 i opened my friend door and there was an american soldier standing there so i, I want to ask you one thing if i can yeah. just leading up to that because i'm just curious yeah was there any like underground secretive yeah. groups that wanted to take out the bath party or was it no one spoke of that until the americans came in perhaps majority of these of these groups who were resisting against saddam they either lived in the uk the United okay. States or Iran. Okay. These are the three countries or rivals, basically, of Saddam Hussein after Desert Storm. Okay. And if anybody was operating in the inside, if this person gets caught operating against the Iraqi government, 
most likely not only himself and his family will die, probably his third and fourth cousins will get executed. Okay. It sure. is it is a horrible. I have so I've seen people get, lose their life that they had a fourth or a sixth cousin that did something against the government. You know, and that's yeah. how bad this is. And this this regime and Saddam had made it a clear back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Anybody stands against my system, I'm gonna eliminate you. And he made it a clear to his people, and they know that. So yeah. everything was that way for me until 2003. The war starts. I opened my front door, and there was an American soldier standing there. And now, how many? Where where were you living? Were you in Baghdad or were you outside of Baghdad? Were I was in Baghdad, in? actually. So I was like in Midtown Baghdad. Were you in Midtown, like the Mansour district or that yeah, area? Yeah, so I was actually about like maybe 15 miles from Mansour district. Gotcha. I was in what's called Al Ghazaliya. Yeah, it was actually yeah. <laughs> known to be a very shitty place during the war. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was actually yeah. growing up in there. I grew up in there and um, I was in Ghazaliya. And gotcha. it was about gotcha. maybe uh, 20 miles from Bayup. Uh, yeah, 10, 15 miles from Al Mansur, and so literally, you got to see the whole war uh, right in front of you in the sky in 2003. Wow! When yeah, the Americans entered um, Iraq, and um, I literally had a little chair outside of my house. I set it up, and while I watched American jets and cruise missiles chasing them, and SAM <laughs> missiles flying, it was actually like being at a 3D theater here in the United States, <laughs> except it was real. It was not yeah. sound effects. It was real. Yeah. You watch American jets get shot down. You watch the, uh, the Iraqi uh, air defense missiles take off. And I just kind of watched. And, you know, to me, it was like just another war because Clinton back in the 90s did a couple airstrikes in Iraq and then kind of faded off within days. And um, I thought I didn't think America was serious at that point. And until literally when I opened my friend door and I saw a white person and this was like, I was like, Oh shit. Like <laughs> this person is really white. And, um, and, yeah. and I opened, you know, I, I was just looking and believe it or not, Chris, when the, when the armor was coming through, yeah, yeah. the armor was coming through, you know, being born in war is pretty fucked up because you understands what Russian armor and yeah. difference in, in armor. You already like educated on weapons, tanks, everything. And when I saw the armor from far away and people said, oh, my God, the Republican Guard is here. And I looked and I was like, these are very big ass armor. <laughs> I was looking at Bradley's at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I was looking and I said, the Iraqis does not own anything that high. Yeah. So if these are not the Republican Guards, who else would it be? These are yeah, Americans. Yeah. So everybody went inside. And I think the first what, 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 what was your feeling, man? When you saw that, though, what, what did anything feeling come inside? You're like, oh, fuck, yeah, they're here. Or you're like, oh, OK, uh oh, what? Oh, no, didn't well, know I was. And here's how I found out. There was a, a very known bath party member in my neighborhood. OK. Was actually <clears throat> standing with an RPG in the end of the neighborhood. Oh. <laughs> and the way I knew these were Americans, he got shot in the face. He was yeah. killed. Uh, the first know? guy. So he gets shot and they said, oh, so-and-so just got shot in the face. And I was like, oh, this is, these are the Americans. <laughs> they said the snipers shot him in the face. And I was like, yep, these are not Republican guards. These are Americans. So we all went inside, closed the doors. The okay. next time I opened the door is when actually the Bradleys were in the, in the neighborhood and the soldiers were outside of the Bradleys walking right around it. 
Sure. They were all deployed and dismounted all around it. Dismounted. And patrol. I just yep. opened up my front door and I just, the person literally turned around wearing his uh, green camouflage body armor, you know, his ACU. Yeah. And I'm looking and, and I just kept looking and I, and I just looked and I looked at him. He looked at me and I shut the door in his face and I went back inside. How old were you then, brother? I was like 17, 16, late oh, so 16, 17. And so, I just said, I said, went to back my family and I said, uh, I said, there's a white dude in the front door. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean a white person? I said, no, no, there is a white person that it doesn't look anything like us is in the front door. And they said, are you sure this is not like Saddam intelligence pulling some, some yeah. game? Do not talk to him. Do not. I said, you know, this dude is white. <laughs> I said, I've never seen someone that white before. I'm like, this dude is white. And he had a dip in his mouth. Yeah. So, so there you know, so, it's got the Copenhagen in, man. So, you know, the English at the time was not so clear. And I didn't speak it as, as good as at the time. So I went back. And I was like, fuck it. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'll just talk to him. And I opened the door and I said, uh, I looked at him and I said, uh, hey, sir. I said, uh, are you guys staying this time? And, and there was a reason why I was asking that question, because in 1991, during the desert storm, people who talked to the Americans when they entered Iraq all the way down to Baghdad and then they pulled out back to Kuwait, people got killed and executed for talking and engaging oh. the Americans in conversations. And I just wanted to know if, if he said they were going to pull out or they're leaving, I was going to shut that door yeah. and that conversation is over. And he looked at me and he goes, no, nah, we're not leaving this time. And I opened the rest of the door. And he looked at me and he was just couldn't process. He goes, are you happy we're here? And I looked at him and it just literally, I was like, you have no idea what I've been living through. And I literally walked out of the door and I look left and right. Imagine hours prior, I am looking at all these bath party members doing all the flexing their muscles in the neighborhood. I talked to this guy and I look left and right and there was no signs of any bath party members in my neighborhood. They were gone. Their houses were empty. It was silent. It was just me and this guy who's named Brad from Texas. And I literally looked and I was like, Brad, is there anything I can get you? And I'm like, I got nothing. We, we, live, we live like shit and, and, and during the war. We have very limited amount of food, limited amount of things. And he said, uh, he goes, do you have cigarettes? I said, we do. I said, uh, my dad has actually some of his cigarettes inside. You want me to go get you something? So I went inside, and at the time, the cigarettes that my dad smoked called Somer. Okay. This was yeah. the shittiest <laughs> cigarettes ever produced in the history <laughs> of tobacco. I <laughs> yeah, those yeah. those are worse than the what's the menthols that the people that we have yeah. in America. They're terrible. Um, they're I, horrible. I, but I, I honestly, I've smoked. I smoked a few of those. I yeah. There's days you're like, man, I just want my, I just want carcinogen and cancer to come in my lungs in one. I puff. know. It's like. It's easier if you shoot yourself in the foot. I know. And it better. You have a chance of living. But that <laughs> that thing was horrible. It was actually produced during the sanctions because we couldn't have yeah. anything come from outside of the country during the sections. So 
you know, they they uh, produce this shitty thing made out of whatever. You, you could be smoking shoes, all shoes, and not we know. Thought, yeah, we thought we were smoking asbestos and formaldehyde <laughs> and mixed in with a little cow shit. But there's no cows, so I don't yeah, know where the cow like, shit. I went and grabbed my dad's cigarettes, and I was like, Dad, you're not going to, you don't need to smoke anymore. We're, it's over. And uh, <laughs> we took it, and I gave it some of it. And he said, oh, I ran out of cigarettes in Kuwait. That's what he said to me. And he goes, I've been like really surviving with this day because I ran out of cigarettes. He goes, oh, thank you. So I gave him some and I started walking because the Bradley moved. He started walking and I just kept walking with him. And all I'm asking him is, is are you guys leaving? Are you guys going to stay? Are you sure? Can you ask your bosses? Are you guys going to stay? And he said, dude, we're staying. He goes, we just took down. We just took over buy up. We are all over. He goes, people are still fighting. So. The problem is they were in Baghdad. We're looking at Americans in Baghdad in front of us and Basra in the south and the borders are still fighting. Yeah. And here's why Basra is still fighting. They don't like Saddam. They hate the guy. They were fighting because they didn't want to get executed like 1991 where Saddam buried people alive, not fighting against the Americans. So literally the people in Basra in Umm Qasr fighting against the British military and the American military in a vicious fight. Until people told him, look, Baghdad just fell down. Ah. And they said, what? They said, Baghdad is down. Americans are in Baghdad because the United States military used a, an operation where they call it the, the frog jumps. They were actually making it jumping from one place to another yeah. while they thought the troops were trying to get in into the borders. They were already in Baghdad. And the, the people in Basra was like, OK, so Baghdad down, that means Saddam's down. So we don't have to fight. They just put their weapons down and walked away. And wow. they were just afraid. And that's why that Basra fought harder than Baghdad because they were afraid to lose their life. And they didn't want their kids or their women to be buried alive like Saddam did in sure. 1991. So they, they were afraid. They, they didn't know what to do. And they just kind of put their weapons down and walked away. And, and then within three days, the Americans sigh up. Uh, there was no TV. Nothing. The American Saab actually established a, a, a radio communications with the people. And here's what they said. They said, police officers, you are welcome to get back to your job. Report to your own police station. And the old Iraqi military is already been dis, dis, demolished and gone. And we are establishing. This is the one sentence that changed my life. We are establishing a new Iraqi military. And if you are interested, show up at a so-and-so uh, near Al Muthanna Air Base. How, how old are you at this point? I was 17, man. What? Perfect. Yeah. And I literally heard that sentence. And I was like, I'm out of here. I went in and I ran to this place and th there was no transportation. There was no nothing. <laughs> I mean, to get there, it was mission impossible. And I literally walked like miles and left and right. Some people got me from one point to another. And I show up and I see an American soldier standing there at a MEP station they established. <laughs> That's a, and I uh, walk in. Hi, hi. And I said, uh, there was about four people on the line. And there's why there's four people on the line. Iraq had mandatory military during Saddam town because we were at war since 1980. So when you tell people, do you want to join the military? They'll spit on your face. Gotcha. Nobody <clears> wants to be in the military anymore. People are actually excited. Saddam is gone. So no more military. No more military. Okay. And here is four people, including I'm number five, 
the most hopeless five people in the country, obviously, are standing in that line. <laughs> and I walk in and I just say, uh, I show my ID. The four guys get processed, get sent in. And there was an American civilian. I don't know what department he belonged to. He was like probably State Department, whatever he was. He looked at, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. He goes, you, you, they can't let you in. You are 17. We're taking 18 years old and above. Typical, typical military recruiting, dude. They don't want the guys that actually want to fight. They want to get, they want to find a way to and get it, the people that don't want to fight. And it just crushed me, right? Like, I didn't understand that 18 years old. And I'm like, dude, like, why does, what difference does it make? It's yeah. only months away. Did you tell them like you were 12 and you got the shit? No, no, I didn't, already, I didn't say like, anything. Hey, dude, I've I, already been through more than you have in your entire life. And I'm 17. <laughs> you can and, I, and I just literally, I wanted to cry, Chris. Like, I wanted to cry when he told me you can't do that. And to me, it was like, this is the only chance in my life to have a gun and fight for my rights against people I couldn't look up in the face. I couldn't look at them. I was like, it's my only chance. And I'm about to go back where all these bath party members started coming back in my neighborhood, started forming all these resistance and, sure. and, and militias and, and terrorists against the American military. And I was like, I'm not, I, I got to figure something out. So I, I leave, I left and I went back to my neighborhood and on our Iraqi IDs in the Iraqi Jinsia, it was all handwritten. And a guy in my neighborhood actually faked IDs. He removes that first layer, he changes it and he puts it back and he seals it. And he gives you back the ID and he actually updated me one year. And he just said, okay, I'll update you for one year. And then you can just go back and uh, show him. So he said, Hey, you know what? The Americans will eventually change shifts. It's too hot in Iraq. Um, just go back, show the ID. Don't say anything and walk through. So I changed my shirt. I put a hat on and I, I go back. And I show up and it's the same American guy standing in there in the gate. <laughs> and there was not many people to really overthrow him. And I showed him the ID and he looked at me and he goes, I thought you were 17 this morning, weren't you? <laughs> and I looked, I said, yeah. I said, we had a birthday. Like I'm, I'm, I'm now 18. <laughs> he just looked at me. He's like, he goes, how did you do this? I said, it's how they do it. They remove the first layer and they change the ID. And he goes, look, go get one of your parents to come sign this application and I'll let you in. That's cool. And I went and got my mom, she signed it and I came in and they literally let me in and I walked through MEPS, got my ID card, got my picture taken, medical check. And they said, you're getting shipped next week and show up here in this place. And we're taking you in a convoy to the Northern side of Iraq, which I've never been to. And they, I showed up and there was a convoy <laughs> and it was a, maybe about a hundred of us showed up and got into the, the, the buses where we escorted by a convoy and we got taken to Karkush, which is the Iranian Iraqi borders. And we were, were received by an American drill instructors from MPRI. It's a company training company. Yeah, they hired. I, mean, I, I know MPRI very well. Yep. Yeah. So they hired MPRI <laughs> and they brought all these old dogs from Vietnam, you know, yeah. war. <laughs> <laughs> hired them to train the first group of the Iraqi military. And I was sitting in the bus, light in the back. And I remember the people in the bus looked at me and they said, dude, you're just a child. You're going to run away. And I just like, I was like, whatever. I'm just going to sit here. And when the bus pulled in, um, an older guy 
who was like an older white dude, looks pretty much from Vietnam era guy. And I, I just thought he was going to get up and say, hey, welcome to welcome to the training base. You know, this is who I am in order to juice himself. He got up and the turp was right behind him. He got into the bus and I literally saw his hat. He was wearing a, a like a gray uniforms. That's where they were wearing. And he just looked at us and he said, get the fuck out of this bus. <laughs> and he was mad. Like he was super mad. And we were looking, we we're like, why is he mad? We're trying to process because this is not an uh, Iraqi. This is not an American training base. We don't know what's like. And people were like, what's wrong? Like who pissed him off? <laughs> so we got up and it was all a bunch of stone in the ground. And he just said push-ups. And every other Iraqi is looking into each other in the face. They're like, what, what does that mean? Like, what's push-ups? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I looked and I said, push-ups? I pushed my arms. And he goes, yep, push-ups. And I, we all said, hey, guys, we got to go down. So we started doing push-ups in the stone. <clears throat> and all the other Iraqis are like, what the fuck is this? This is not what I signed up for. Um, and we started doing push-ups. And after like 20 push-ups, he said, get up. Every five of you go to, towards that building. You go towards that. They were actually separating people to companies. And I walked in and I sat there and uh, I, I got into the room and they had a bed all set up, ready, clean. And he said, okay, here's how this bet's going to go from now on. And he started making that little line in the end of the bed. And he goes, this is how I want you to do your bed. He goes, tomorrow morning, I'm going to come over. And if this bed is not done this way, I'm throwing you and the bed from the top of the building. Top, top of the building. <laughs> And I was like, I was like, holy shit, this is more brutal than Saddam. And, and um, and truly, we got on, and we were supposed to have a second shipment three days later, and the second shipment got hit by a car bomb in the MEP station, and people wow. died. Sure. And they said there was no more second shipment. The people who were actually trying to get in the buses got <clears throat> discouraged and and ran away. Did that? Did when that happened? I don't mean to cut you off, but did, yeah, yeah. when when you heard that, did that? steal your resolve to even like all right fuck this bath party fuck saddam car bomb hit i'm i'm now i'm really into it or did it be like you know what i need to go back home why am i doing this what, what Hon was your mindset when you honestly uh when when that when we heard that while being at yeah at a at base you kind of felt like the war just really started okay you felt like things are gonna go south there is no going back yeah and we started doing our training and that's when really the, the, the trainers and the drill instructors got serious with us. And they said, look, you might enter this base in a different condition, but we can tell you right now, there are things happening down outside of this fob, outside of this camp, that things are getting really bad. And you're about to be the first soldier that your nation will face who's about to force the law. And truly, when they got into that training, Chris, they were not joking. I mean, sure. these guys were so serious. They actually figured out the problem. Most of us who got out of that bus were skinny because we were living under sanctions. Sure. We were very, like, not able to handle training on the first day. Um, so they actually contracted with a five-star Iraqi restaurant in, that was pretty famous in Baghdad. You would dream of sitting and having a meal there. They contracted with that place and they said, we, we demand that they eat extra amount of protein, meat, yeah. steak every single day. And we started training and we were doing PT twice a day. Sure. Going to the range every other day. We were, we, we hated 
shooting at that point because <laughs> we couldn't understand why this training was so difficult. <clears throat> and truly after three months of training, one of the instructors came in and he just said, he goes, guys, he goes, shit's getting bad. The first RPG just hit an American Humvee in the way to buy up. And he goes, you guys are all about to be on your own once this is over. And we started really taking training seriously. I mean, you can see the Iraqi soldier physique started changing. Sure. You were doing PT. You were getting in shape. You were shooting. You were very confident. And we all got distributed to like our specialty school after the three months. Some of us went to NCO school. Some of us went to infantry school, whatever. And then we got deployed out. And the first time we stepped out of that base, we were going on our way to the first Fallujah battle. So that's where you headed first. You're that's where we headed the, first. The, the Ambar. Ambar. Yep. Yeah, Ambar. Uh, and, um, go ahead. And literally, we leave. And to go to Ambar province from Karakush, from the borders of Iran, yeah. you have to go through Baghdad first. And then you have to go through Bayab. Yep. And then you have to get to Fallujah. And that's where you get. We actually got stopped in Shela. Shela was inside, literally in the mid of Baghdad. And in Shela, we got approached by the Mehdi militia. Oh, yeah. Wow. And literally, it was a whole battalion moving together. And it was about 150 of us got out and they approached us and we got hit. So that's that's McTadas. That's Sauter's militia. That's, that's Sauter's guys. That's Sauter's guys. Yeah, Mahdi. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the way this went is they had ICDC at the time. They didn't have Iraqi military. ICDC were just locals. Okay from people like they're like police pretty much locals they kind of banged them up every time they passed by so they thought the meta militia thought this was just a random icdc unit uh. going by they didn't know this was a whole infantry unit and this was <laughs> unit been training every single day shooting for every day for three six months to three to six months so when they hit us we all dismounted out yeah yeah and when we dismounted out, we were like a green uh, camel in our Kevlars. So we looked different and we engaged them. And into like about five minutes into the fight, they, they realized, oh, shit, these are not the local farmers. <laughs> and uh, we started heading at them and we started charging into the neighborhood. We were moving as a professional infantry unit. We were drilling this for six months every day. Sure. And we went in and we were like, fuck yeah, this is the real time. And people start getting shot in the face. They didn't see that we were pulling out. We were like, well, I guess we're not going to Fallujah. You guys are, you guys are giving us the welcome here. So we got out and we literally destroyed, destroyed every single front store wow. in that town. Took it down, just destroyed everything. And then we got on the trucks and continued on our way. Wow. So literally they had, they were burning tires. They were trying to stop the convoys and we continued in our way. We went through the first Fallujah battle. And then within about three to four weeks, they pulled, they pulled us a smaller group of us. And they said, you guys are going to Baghdad. And we just looked at each other. We're like, what's in Baghdad we're going for. This is where the big fight is. And they said, you guys are going to the same recruiting station you guys came from. So, uh, you can protect the recruiting center, which is facing Haifa Street. Yeah, yeah, that's so bad. That's bad. <laughs> we get there, and we had no idea what Haifa Street was at that point. We get there, and we see an ICDC unit 
in the back. We see an American first cab unit. And we were supposed to be the guys to go on the front and protect the center because the center was getting attacked every single day, twice a day. Well, was it and so, was solder control? Was that hype? Was that Zakari? No, no, that no. Was Haif, that, Haifa, Haifa was Haifa actually was. the most vicious Mujahideen you'll ever meet. And here's why they were different. And this is why that road was the most dangerous world in the world at that time. No, I, I remember. I, and I, it was I, called by the Americans the Purple Heart Valley. Purple Heart Valley. Yeah. That's what it's called. I, I have a picture of me yeah. up on a building, up on a looking yeah. over the top of, down. And I remember that's the first place we got hit with yeah. grenade. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, contractors was a nightmare for contractors. Yeah. And actually, we had a sign, <laughs> but I still have a picture of that sign. We had a sign that said, all convoys go the other way. Do not go through this in English and Arabic. And um, and I get there and I just look as soon as I got to the gate and I look and I'm looking, I'm counting into the RPG holes in the wall. And I'm counting. I'm like, there's like about six RPG holes in the wall. And I can see PKC bullets marks are all on the wall. So we get there and it was like afternoon and uh we the ICDC pulled back to their base. We took over the front gate, and uh, they told us this get hit twice a day. Yeah, and I said, "What do you mean to get hit?" They said, "We get attacked at night, and in the mornings we get hit by car bombs and suicide bombers because of the line of the recruits that comes in." I mean, it was like a 500 meter gate with walls and towers, and that's all you had. You felt it was easy to do. This is nothing compared. This is not a conventional war. Sure. So we held the gate. <clears throat> And it was around 7.30 at night, they attacked the gate with personnel. They had, they had about maybe eight PKCs. Okay. And we had one metal gate. Everything is a, is a concrete barrier, like uh, about, about 10 feet tall concrete barriers. And they really made us feel, Chris, that they are trying to break in. We literally slept behind the gate. That's where we all slept. Sure. So if they break the gate, we're, we're taking this fight to the barracks. Yeah. So half of us slept, half of us were on shift and we trained to actually put our gear and and yeah. and get it out. And when we saw that first attack, I told my soldiers at the time I was a baton sergeant, I said, don't even worry about putting your uniform on. I don't care if you come out of here in an underwear. Yeah. Pick <laughs> put your body arm around and get out because I was like, I feel the pressure. APKC sure. is being shot at you. I mean, you a PKC, one PKC is not a joke. When you have eight of them open on you, I mean, literally what I did, I lay down behind a concrete barrier and mm -hmm. I just watched all these bullets fly. Like if you put your head up, you're pretty much getting smashed. Yeah. And their, their mission was hit and run. And that's what they did in Iraq. Hit and run. Mm -hmm. And their job actually was to keep us up, to disturb us, because the big hit comes in the morning around 6, 30, 7 o'clock when the line is big outside. That's when they hit you with a car bomb or a suicide bomber. And the guy who was leading this resistance, his name is Colonel Hisham, who was actually a Republican Guard colonel who specialized in ambushes. He, trained, he was trained in Russia during the Iran-Iraq war. He was actually breaking us psychologically. You don't get to sleep. You respond in the middle of the night. You're not going back to sleep. You're afraid. And in the morning, you get hit by a car bomb. I mean, look, how much energy can you have? Yeah. You're yeah. done. And I... Remember the one of the first bomb, car bombs that blew up on recruits. Um, I'm not exaggerating this. I think hundreds of people were dead. 
immediately because there was a lot of traffic. Sure. And they brought a cement truck. Yeah. Cement truck full <clears throat> of C4. And it stopped in the middle of the traffic, in front of the gate, while the line of soldiers, all the line of new recruits who were just applying to the rocket military, and blew up. And at the time, I was sleeping in my room. And I was off shift because I have done the night shift before. And when it blew up, I actually was sleeping on a, on a double bunk. I was on the top. When it blew up, all I remember when I wake up, I was falling from the top to the ground. And that's how powerful I felt. The wall next to me was about to fall on me. Wow. I swear it felt like an atomic bomb just went off. And I was like, this is not a car bomb. This got to be something yeah. huge. And I just got out and I just all I see is smoke. And I hear people screaming. And when I got out and I responded to it, uh, I had my body armor and my shirt, my Kevlar. And at the time, I didn't even I put my gun on the side because I'm trying to distinguish where my soldiers were and where are the civilians and the people that are in the cars that are dead. And I can hear like very little screaming of people. You couldn't tell where the dead and where the injured were. Sure. Yeah. And you come to carry someone who's been blown up by, I don't know how many pounds, tons of C4. And that's the scary part. Imagine someone, all of their joints, all of their body parts is just dislocated. And they're really hanging by the tissues. It's, it's like jelly. Honestly, it's it like is. picking up, picking up a big, big jelly, a human and, jelly. And form. imagine the psychological yeah. decision you had to make to touch that person. Yeah. And I also remember I tried to carry somebody that his foot was in my face. Like his foot was yeah. turned upside down on his knees and it was in my face and I couldn't understand it. And we put him on pickup trucks trying to take him to the hospital. Truly, I don't know how many people made it. A lot of people were dead. Well, you're still you're still young, too, right? What, 18, oh, yeah, 19? I was 18 years old. And <clears throat> and I. I literally was disgusted with the human grease that was on my body. I mean, the smell when you get out and I can tell you there's no war. There is nothing smells worse than a burn to human being. And I went and I started throwing up. I took off all my clothes, all my equipment, everything went back. And I was just sat in my barracks and I was like, this shit is real. This is going to be bad. This is not going to be any better. 2005 is not going to be a better year in Iraq yeah. because 2004 is already the shit. So they, the focus was to actually focus on your new recruits who are joining the Iraqi military to discourage Iraqi people from joining the Iraqi military. Sure. And I went in and my commander called me to, to his office and he said, there is 25 dead bodies in Haifa Street in the end of Haifa Street right under the bridge. Uh, these were people who filled an application. The driver of the public transportation drove them through Haifa Street. They were not from Baghdad. And they executed all of them, and they laid the bodies on top of one another. Wow. And he said, you're taking a platoon, and you're going there to uh, pick up the bodies, take them to the morgue where their families can pick them up. I mean, it sounds like an easy mission to do. It I know Haifa Street. That's not an easy. You got to go all the way up so north. Yeah, that's when wow. you know you see it into like, wow. you know, Al Kalani <laughs> Square. Then Haifa yeah. Street starts, 
and that's where Purple Heart Valley is. And they put the bodies right towards the end, right by the river. So I'm looking at my lieutenant and I said, hey, what, what do you think this shit is? Just, they put the bodies all the way down on the end. They almost making us feel like they know we're coming to get the bodies. Well, they're, they're trying to draw you in, man. Draw you they're in. Drawing you to the, to the, to the, so, to the dead end. So my lieutenant goes, he goes, you know what? Let's, let's just pick the bodies and get out of the other way. Don't come back sure. the same way. I said, okay, let's do that. So we went in and I got in to the end of the bridge and we parked our vehicles at the high ground and you have to go low ground, like at sure. beach sand, get under the bridge. And there was buildings right in front of you. The one weird thing I will never forget. As soon as we got to Alkalani square, there was not one human being <laughs> in that road. <laughs> quiet. Yeah. that's. And I know what that means when they're yeah, quiet so yeah. and you couldn't see anybody. I was like, there's no homeless cats. There's nothing. It's just not as silent. So we drove and, and we got there. We went down. We parked the vehicles, and we fa- we pushed all our, our PKCs literally sure. towards the buildings, and we went down. And literally, we, as we went down, we see the bodies are laid right on top of another. Young guys between the age of 22 to, like, 17 years old, laid on top of one another, shot in the, in the head. And literally, as soon as I turn around to look at the vehicles to figure out how we're going to carry the bodies up the hill, the first RPG flew into one of our trucks. Uh, And as soon as that RPG hit the truck, the amount of fire that opened from the buildings, they were all hiding behind the walls, waiting for us to take down that one hole. And the, 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 the point of that ambush that day was designed by Sayed Hitchum himself was actually to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform because killing recruits was not scary enough. The point was to get one of those guys in uniform so it can show the Iraqi people this is what could happen if you join. And me and my lieutenant got separated in two different groups. I went into one bridge column. He went in to get, uh, under another. And the fight continued for about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, did, you have any, did you have any comms with any army, with any U.S. Yes. army? Yeah, okay. No, no. We have comms with our QRF. With your QRF, but no, US, no, no U.S. army support. No, no. So okay. usually you have a QRF that's ready in the base, that's ready and that's normal. Yep, yep, yep. And it's just another platoon. Yep. So immediately, once that happened, I immediately called, dismounted the QRF, which was ready to go, left the gate. Sure. Which is, it takes them about maybe 10 minutes to get to me. Not even. If they're flying fast, they can yep. get there sooner. Yep. So I called <clears> the QRF, <throat> and in my head, this is going to go down for about five, six minutes. And it's going to stop once the QRF come over. And as we started pulling down, I saw my guys were getting dropped one after another. And what it was, it was a sniper that had about five-inch hole in an apartment building facing us. And I have a picture to this day, Chris, of it. It's a five-inch hole. That's big. And he had his barrel right out. And we are in the low ground. He has the high ground. So you're see, did you see the mother flash or did you see the barrel first? What did oh, you see? We we saw we saw his a flash because he didn't have a suppressor. Okay. He was using a Tabuk uh, sniper rifle. Gotcha. Okay. And we so noticed that there was a sniper, obviously on the high ground, because sure. my guys were getting shot in the liver, not in the uh, front, uh, in the liver. Under there was the, no under the plates, and he was yeah, yeah. intentionally shooting them in the liver. So my buddy actually got shot in the liver, and the bullet went out from his other side. 
So That's when bad. a bullet went out, this was done. He he didn't live for like minutes. And then yeah, but, I tried to put every medical treatment in the world to stop the bleeding. It was no, it liver, was like liver, a, it's liver's a, a kill bullet. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. literally it's a PKC bullet. That's how big it is. It's a higher caliber. And it, when it goes out of the body, it's, you're done. There's no way out. And um, I stayed behind the barrel and I started hearing screaming in the radio. But it was not my lieutenant. It was not the other um, squad that was with me. It was actually my QRF. QRF was getting hit. Screaming. And I kept asking the QRF, is, is, are you coming in the way? Are you getting close? Are you close? We're getting pushed in because the more fire coming at us. And the, the last thing I heard in that radio, it was the voice of the captain who was in that QRF. And he said, he said, I think I have 16 to 17 of my guys are been shot. I mean, total people, he has about 25 guys. Sure. And he said, I have three bullets in my back. And that's what he said to me. He said, I'm sorry. I am turning around. I'm going straight to the hospital. And, and I never heard from him again. And at that point, I knew that we were not leaving out of there. Our only hope in that fight was the American military to do something about this, if they could. So what they did, actually, they let us in. They plussed another group. Any QRF coming, they know the QRF will be coming, and they plus barrels like IDs in the world. So there will be no QRF. American or Iraqi will make it in. They'll have all the time in the world to run us out of our ammo yeah. and just walk us one after another. At the time, I lost communications with my lieutenant. The crew that I was with have lost about seven to eight guys. <clears throat> we had a little stairs under the bridge, so I tried to take a high ground. We were trained. If you are sure. fighting in the low ground, try to retake the high ground so yeah. you can see what's above, what's above you. So I sent about three guys in a separate times to take the stairs under the bridge to go up the bridge so they can cover for us and we can pull out. The three guys I sent got laid down in the stairs, got killed right in it. The sniper eliminated them as soon as they got on the stairs. They had literally a sniper on it, knowing exactly we would take that move and it was the three dead bodies of my soldiers. So this on that stairs. was this a second sniper or was second it the sniper. same one? Okay. Second. So you have one, if you get out of the column, if you get out of your cover, you're done. And you have one, if you try to take a high ground, you're over. And you, you, the river is right behind you. So your enemy in the front, the river is behind you. And you can't take the high ground. You, my dream at the time is to get above the bridge. And I sat in there and I ceased fired. I looked at all the other guys. So at the time, the Iraqi military was not locals. It was actually a mix of Kurds, sure. Yazidis, people from over different background. I had at least about six to seven Kurds. Half of my platoon did not speak Arabic. I communicated with them by hand movement. So <laughs> I had a Kurdish guy who had a PKC in his hand who spent his whole life fighting the Republican Guard in the north. Sure. He just looked at me, and we just ceased fired, me and him. And we all stopped fighting and we just went silent and they stopped firing at us too. And that's when Said Hisham got on the radio and started talking to me in my own comp. And he said, he said, we're, you're Iraqis. We're not going to kill you. We're going to let you go home. Just put your guns down and come out of the column. And at the time we turn off our radios, we know what the next move was. We know we were going to get beheaded in national TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the Kurdish guy and I talked and we said, look, we're going to cease fire. We're going to keep our ammo. And we, we made a rule, 15 meters rule. If they come at us within 15 meters, we are doing single shots. We are not shooting anywhere. Single shot. We got a PKC that will push any pressure on us. And we're not going to run out of ammo because clearly they're trying to get us to do that. Yeah. So we did that and they figured out what we were doing. They started pressuring us. Yeah. Harder and harder. At the time, the U.S. military immediately found out what was going on. They saw the Iraqi uh, QRF get smoked. The guy who actually led that QRF goes by the name Lieutenant Jeff Morris, who also actually wrote a book. It's called Legion Rising. And he talks actually about the ambush from the outside in his book. So Jeff was actually responsible for Haifa Street. This was his sector. He knew the game. He knew exactly how they were operating. So yeah. Jeff actually sent, and he actually filmed it. He filmed in video the whole thing. Was that, Jeff was, was that first Cav? Was that the Steel Dragons? Yep. Yeah, he because they, they manned Little Assassin's Gate, right? Yep. Right yep. after, yeah. That's I, him. I know those guys, yeah. So actually Jeff sent two Bradleys <clears throat> to the front of the line where they were all setting their ambush to prevent any Carol Ref, and they pretended to trying to break in. While two other Bradleys turned around and went from the other side. The other side, yeah. So when I was actually fighting, the first thing I noticed, it was the Bradley coming above me. And they opened the, 20, the 125 cannon on yeah. the sniper location. The Bushmaster, they just... And they yeah, just yeah. started. And then when yeah. I saw all this, this, this support coming through me, and then I, I, as I got up, I felt like my morals were back. Sure. My morality was back. I got out of the started shooting, started closing at them. And I felt a rocket went right literally by my head <laughs> and hit the building. And I literally knew, and I was like, did, did some like Navy SEAL come out of the river and shot somebody? Like, where did this shit come from? And here's what it was. It was an Apache. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Help that was actually miles away. <laughs> but these idiots didn't know that Apache had the technology to see you from further oh, distance. Yeah. Ah, and they end. shot a rocket so the rocket came by my head like it flew up over me and i was like did any of my soldiers have an rpg they didn't tell me about this whole time like <laughs> what's going on and i turn around and then immediately you see the rpg with a stale up on the middle of the the river coming sure. behind you and that's truly when they all ran away and i immediately stopped i was shot to the left knee i had a grenade shrapnel to the left knee i had a shrapnel hit me to my uh right eye yeah. uh, on my um eyebrows and then I, I just looked and i and i was like how many guys did we lose like in my head i was like lost maybe six seven guys uh. and i stopped counting these are only the guys that i lost i don't know where my lieutenant is so i go to try to find where my lieutenant is i see dead guys but I don't see the body of the lieutenant. So I'm like, I'm assuming he's still alive. And he, during the whole firefight, I heard a lot of screaming, Allah, Akbar screaming. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. thought they were actually attacking. Why they were using this, they weren't. They actually have captured the lieutenant alive. How'd they, where did he go? How'd the lieutenant, what the so, hell did he? So he ran out of ammo. And was, was he really All, far away from you? I mean, was he, he was far away. That, that I couldn't see up. him. Okay, I couldn't okay. see him. He was completely behind a different like column. Okay, okay. So he ran out of ammo, and they captured him, killed everybody around him, and walked him up the hill. We didn't see him. And they tied him to the traffic light right in front of the bridge. 
and beheaded him. Ah. So when Jeff Morris opened his Bradley to get out, to be dismounted out of the Bradley, the first thing went in his face was the body of my lieutenant. And Jeff tells me, like, you know, when me and Jeff, you know, talked about it, Jeff said this was the most horrific thing he ever saw in his life. Yeah. It's a body, no head, no head. in uniform, tied up to a traffic light. And it just, and it's, I, and it's know, a fresh, mean, it's fresh. I don't mean to be disrespectful, and, but it's yeah, fresh. Man. It's a fresh. And it's, it's, you know, Jeff was completely like traumatized by it. And um, they got out, they saw this and they went down, they saw us and we were all injured. Not one of my guys were actually completely fine. Everybody was injured sure. and shot somewhere. Uh, I counted at the time, and I realized there was only nine of us still alive. Now, when I went and counted, there was about 18 of them were gone, wow. were killed. So when I got out, this was the biggest massacre in 2004. And I got out. I got up the hill. I was <clears> helped <throat> by American soldiers from the first cabs getting up there. I got back to the base. Everybody went to the hospital. I went and got passed up. And they said, look, the shrapnel missed your eye. You were lucky it hit your eyebrows. And you have one in the knee, a shrapnel. We're not going to bother taking it out. Uh, we're just going to patch it and drink some water. And that's what they tell you in the American hospital. It's drink said, water. Drink said, water, take Motrin. You'll be fine. And that's literally, <laughs> I was like, I was like, it's a grenade shrapnel. It's a fucking grenade. It's this Russian grenade shrapnel. And they're like, drink water. And I'm like... <laughs> And I'm like, I'm not going to pee this shrapnel in the bathroom. This is my knee. <laughs> so they, they told me to go, and I went back to the base. And I literally, Chris, when I walked into the gate, I saw people in civilian clothes, soldiers of mine, who were in the base, walking out of the gate. I heard about it. I heard bags. about it. Yeah, I heard about that. I, and I, I just, yeah. and I just, this was a, honestly, this broke <clears> me <throat> more than the, the whole firefight. It's you watch people give up. And they were walking out with their backs. And I know they have kids. I, I mean, at this age in my life, I don't look at them the same way I looked at them back then. At that time, I look at them as cowards. I said, you're just walking out because yeah. they hurt you. They injured you. And you're done. You're walking out of this. And I went and I sat literally with my head down in my, in my barracks room. The guy that slept right under my bed didn't come with me that day to the barracks. He died right on Hyper Street. Mm. And I was sitting in a barracks room where... Three other guys were with me in that room, and they were not with me that day. It was just me coming back to this room. And one of my NCOs opened the door, and he said, uh, they're taking us to the Ministry of Defense. The Minister of Defense wants to meet us, and he wants to give us some extra money, and we're all getting promoted. And at the time, my command sergeant major have ran out. Oh, they left. They left. My command sergeant major literally saw, heard what I was going through, Saw the QRF getting smashed and didn't want to be sent next. So he left. Yeah. So yeah. I came in. The unit, half of the unit is gone. I'm sitting down and I'm thinking in my head, literally, Chris, I'm like, if I go home right now, what, what would I do? If I go back to my neighborhood, some bath party member is going to come over and beat my ass or it's going to behead me or it's going to do something to me. Or I'm going to sit here and they're going to injure the shit out of me. They're going to kill me eventually. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. eventually get captured. And here I thought 2005 was going to be a great year, but I was in 2004 and I'm already given up. I'm already done. So I was like, I'm, I'm just going to deal with it day by day. And I, I got on the car in the convoy and I went to the Ministry of Defense and the Minister of Defense promoted me to uh, a com command sergeant major. So I went, <laughs> I went from a platoon sergeant <laughs> 
to a command sergeant major in about an hour. I got my rank. My paycheck jumped in immediately. Sure. And he gave us like <clears throat> 50,000 Iraqi dinars at the time was equal like nothing, 100 bucks basically. Uh, we basically donated that to the people that died. Uh, and I went back to my unit. So I had to have a unit, not even a battalion. It was just like I have a battalion, maybe a couple companies or if not, if not less. Somehow I had to motivate these guys to get back to work. And let's, let's just get back to work and move on. And I went back and I operated in that gate every single day. I, lo I still lost more people. And then uh, a special forces officer at the time goes by Major Wise, saw me, and he just looked at me from distance. I spoke perfect English at the time. I was with first calves every single day. I was with Marines. I picked up English within six months. And here's this Iraqi NCO, speaks perfect English, um, looks different, looks very Americanized, young. And he went back to the green zone. And the next thing my commander said, hey, man, there was a, a paper came in. They need you to be transferred to be the MOD sergeant major. So I said, that if I go to the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, so what my job would be, they said, you would protect all the American advisors who would come from the green zone every day to the Iraqi MOD, which is right next to the green zone. So you pretty much you'll be doing checkpoint stuff. Nothing crazy. You're off Haifa Street. Good luck in your career. And I went there. <laughs> there was a Marine NCO who specialized in... Um, in first, first protection, they immediately sent me to counterterrorism first protection school. I was actually the first Iraqi to attend this training. And I learned how to protect the building, how to really secure yeah. it, do my thing. But sandbags, protect all the four-star generals, do this and that. And I just looked at it. I was like, oh, yeah, this seems easy. This is really nothing. And I saw this major wise guy who actually was the guy that was insisting to bring me there. And I said, so what, what do you need from me done? And um, he said, tomorrow, Iraqi employees are going to start entering this building. And as soon as the Iraqis entered the building, I mean, Chris, you had about a couple thousands of Iraqis coming through the building. Every single one of them was a previous general in Saddam's regime. And I just sat there and laughed with a buddy of mine who was smoking a cigarette in front of me. And he's like, what are you laughing about? I said, uh, they want us to protect the building from the enemy outside. I said, well, the enemy has a badge and is already walking in. And he was like, he goes, so what are you going to do? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, this is 2,000 people. I can't fight 2,000 people. I said, I don't know what's going to happen. He said, but I know I have 80 Americans that are going to be in this building between the rank of a major to a four-block colonel. And I said, I, I really don't know. The only thing I can do is I got to make sure the Iraqis leave from one side to go to the red zone at the end of the day of five. And I have to count every single American to go through that little gate, metal gate, which is in my documentary on Amazon. Uh, with, with a picture of that Petraeus standing right in front of it. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I, I don't know. I'll have to count Americans. So I was like a goat herder. I was standing there <laughs> and count how many Americans, <laughs> kind of like how many Americans are leaving and how many Iraqis are leaving the other side. And uh, it sounded easy until about um, the Iraqi government was getting divided based on religious background. So terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, whoever it is, could actually form a political party and run for office. And take right. a part of the cake. So we get a new minister who was from Al-Ambar province, from Fallujah, originally. He's been out of the country for a while. He's not an enemy in any sort. He's been out of the country, came back. And he hires his nephew, who is from Fallujah, to be in charge of all his security. The little, this idiot minister 
didn't know is the nephew is actually a member of Al Qaeda. <laughs> so what does he do? He basically bring 200 Al Qaeda fighters from Fallujah, who's already fighting against the Marine Corps. Bring them to the MOD, issue them badges. So I'm standing there and there is something about guys you've been fighting for about a year, already a year and a half. I've been fighting this enemy. There's something about them. Once they come around you, you feel it. It's like a chemistry in your body. It's like a hormone in your brain, right? When an enemy of yours comes around, you really start feeling it. Yeah. And I sat there and I looked and my master sergeant looked at me. He goes, look at these guys. They got dark spots in their forehead. And what it means is they pray. They're religious. They're devoted. And they got dark elbows. They look like they've been through the shit. And I was like, well, 99% of the people in that province are fighting against the Marine Corps. So, I mean, who the hell is these guys? They're all military age. They look different. And this, and their eyes can't lie to you because the way they look at you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the way they are. And I still standing in a balcony. I still remember. An American football colonel is walking with a 9 millimeter in his leg. Wearing a half-ass body armor, pretty much. Walking through, and I, I'm not looking at the colonel. I'm looking at them the way they're looking at him. It's their first time seeing someone that high of a rank walking by himself. These guys were used to fighting like uh, yeah. 50 Marines at a time, and now they're looking at one colonel walking by, look like a, a fifth grader going to school. It, and yeah. nine millimeter in his leg. And the way <clears> they <throat> look at him, and I was like, fuck, the, the, these are enemy combatants. They, they, they want, these are now, not. They want to rip his. Not. They want to rip his head off. I, I remember the. I, I remember. I remember. And, and it, trust me, they immediately <clears throat> put a plan to kidnap an American officer from the building. At the time, I was brought to that building for that reason to actually communicate with the American advisors, make sure they're safe. So I talked to this intelligent officer who was sent to work with me, goes by the name Jason Failer, who's from Oregon, and. Jason was a, a blue eyes, uh, you know, American white guy uh, was with me about a month working with me. And we're talking every single day in, 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 in English. The fact I didn't know this guy actually spoke flown Arabic. He was married <laughs> to an Egyptian. And he went to the University of Cairo in Egypt. And he was an intelligent officer and he was sent to work with me. But he was not allowed to tell me he spoke my language. He was sure. trying to listen to every single word I say in Arabic. So I went through like a testing for a month, pretty much. And then within a month, I was talking and arguing with him. And I said, so what's your plan when these guys corner you in a small Iraqi bathroom? How are you going to get out? And they said, oh, well, our plan, we're going to get helicopters to come to the top of the building. And I'm like, yeah, good luck. Like, you, you'll be dead <laughs> on the stairs before you even get in. And, I, and, and uh, I was talking to him. And then immediately, this guy spoke Arabic to me. We were like arguing, and then he said something in a fluent, no accent Arabic. I was like, fuck. So I said, you're an Arab, bro? Is he fucking white? And he's like, he's like, look, man, I'm an intelligent officer. This is what I'm doing. I'm only utilizing you, and we really need to make sure we protect these guys because these guys are the guys that are going to build the infrastructure of the Iraqi military. There will be no Iraqi military if these advisors who are responsible of the medical field, communications, operations, all of these guys have to brief General Casey or, or Dempsey at the time every single morning about the situation of the Iraqi military. So this was a crucial, but America was not used to operate with Al-Qaeda being in the same room. This is new. This is uh, weird. And I looked at them and I said, look, 
I'll count your guys every day. Um, they said, on top of that, we're going to have to leave people through the night, about five or six guys. Their job to see all, everything that goes around the Iraqi military at night and report it from the Iraqi operation to the command, their U.S. command ship in, um, in Iraq in the morning. So how many Iraqi soldiers you lost and all, all Iraqi units? How many, how many trucks has been burned? How many commanders been killed or ran away? Or These guys were just briefed the U.S. general yeah. in the morning about what's happening. And these guys who came from Al-Ambar with the minister, who was a member of Al-Qaeda, started walking my building. And at the time, I was completely nervous that, that uh, something was going to happen. I just didn't know what was really going to happen. And they brought a truck that actually lifts T-walls. It has teeth in it. There was no way you can get out of that building. It's only my gate. One entry. And the other entry is for the Americans to go their way. So I was, I was like, what is this truck is for? So I go in there and ask, and they said, this is to move furniture for the minister's office. And as soon as I, I was like, the minister's office is only furnished by sit-down furniture. And there is no way you can move furniture to the second floor with this truck. And this is in to basically remove T-walls. We didn't know what they were in at the time. So they left the building with their minister. And we're kind of like, okay, keep an eye on the truck. Keep an eye on yeah. anything that happened. And they showed up around 1130 at night, Chris. I got that call on the radio. And I was like, I grabbed my Kevlar, my ammo, and I said, we're going to have a firefight in a hallway. You know, before I fought in Hypefish Street on, yeah. you know, conventional warfare, going like road, you know, guerrilla warfare. And I was like, this is different. You're going to fight in between bathrooms and, and living rooms. And um, I get my guys up and I get a team with me to go in and we go in. And I said, immediately, my job, I was trained already to evacuate the six Americans that are on duty. So we immediately went through the second floor. We immediately ordered all these six Americans to get out, immediately run towards the gate, get out of the building and just leave us there. And I sent two of my guys to go to the second floor just to check if there is anything left, if there was a laptop, if there is anything left for the American sure. military. And my guys get up and I'm literally totally relaxed. The Americans already made it to the gate. I, there's nothing they can take out of the building, right? It's only me. And if they want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me, then there's really nothing they can do. And the radio call came through, and he said, there was an American advisor in the second floor has <laughs> been sitting here who was supposed to leave at 4 p.m. And he said, this guy has been a new, new advisor who just got in the country, and he's been sitting here on his laptop in the second floor in the Iraqi Communication Center. And... I immediately ran up top and the, the same soldier in the radio said, all the locks to the back of the building has been broken because we chain all doors. Sure. We try to leave one entrance, <clears throat> one entrance in. They broke the chains. They broke the locks. And I immediately ran it through and um, got in there on top. They were actually from the other side of the, the stairs. There was about 150 of them debating when to go up. And they have noticed him doing the same thing for about four days. So I didn't know this. This guy was doing this for four days. He was in the country for 10 days. Four days, he stayed there until 11. And he will walk back to Fort Phoenix yeah. at night, thinking it's like a, an American university kind of thing. Just take a walk and go home. He was a National Guard guy. <laughs> no offense yeah. to him, but that, he was a National Guard guy. And I was no, like, this is, this is crazy. And I was yeah. like, so I run in. 
and literally all Iraqis who doesn't speak um all Iraqis who doesn't speak uh, uh any word of English and I I walk in and I speak to him and I said if you want to go home you need to get out right now and he immediately grabbed his laptop and he ran wow he ran it through the other way and we pulled slowly through they got up literally a minute after us looked at the room and they went and checked in the bathroom to see if he's in the bathroom and they started walking around their building trying to find out where did this guy go so we pulled him in we get him out i immediately called the american intelligence officer in charge at the time who was a colonel i called him up in his phone twice and i got hold of him colonel john burke answered the phone i said members of al-qaeda within the building trying to kidnap an american officer do not come back so he hangs up the phone he goes wakes up general casey and he yeah. says this is what's happening right now so they immediately gave an order all american advisors they put a travel ban immediately no one can go into the mod for about 72 hours truly during these 72 hours you have four star generals and two star generals are sitting down trying to figure out how we're going to work with Al-Qaeda being in the same room. Like, how are we going to, there's no training in the world. And these guys are mostly National Guard officers. No offense to any branch. Air Force advisors. These are not a special force. These are not Rangers to go in the room with Al-Qaeda sure. operative. They're just advisors. The guys are not there to fight. They're there to advise. Well, and, and they, train. Th they think that the rule of war is going to apply. And it's it, one thing they never realized. War, rule of war. There's no and, rule of war with terrorists. It's, and it's, it's just, not. and it's, they spend this a day, like, how are we going to do this? And they immediately uh, shared intelligence with all the, um, uh, the U.S. intelligence that was in the Abar province fighting at the time. And I got a call and they said, get out of the MOD, go to the green zone, wait outside by yourself. Don't let anybody see you. And, uh, a truck, uh, a truck is going to come by and pick you up. So I, I just went out and a three civilian cars pulled in and um, a female discounted, dismounted from the car. It was SUV, black SUVs, and they were uh, civilians in body armor, um, just looked like contractors, kind of like Blackwater guys. And um, the females opened the back uh, door and just said, get in. And I got in and I wasn't sure. I was like, am I in trouble? Like what's, what's going to happen here? And they drove me uh, to a compound behind the U S embassy. Okay. Which was actually where no locals can see you. Dang. No Iraqi locals are allowed. And they took me to this little building with an interrogation room looking thing. And they said, Oh, sit down here. And I sat and I just I just kind of felt I was like, is the colonel setting me up, him and his intelligence officer to something that so they sat down and she said, Hey man, do you want to work for us? And at the time, with my sarcasm, I looked at her. I said, Well, beside being uh in charge of the most dangerous building in the world, I don't know how many side jobs I can really offer. <laughs> and she said, uh, she said, uh, introduce herself. She said, I am with OGA. That's and this person next to me is uh, actually a member of the Marine Corps intelligence is an actual military personnel. And the third person was from the defense intelligence agency. And she said, we actually flew from Alambar province and Alambar province at the time had no human leads because the city of Ambar and the city of Fallujah was all evacuated. The war was going at its highest level against the Marines. So they didn't have any leads and they were trying to figure out who these guys are in my building.
So she looked at me. She goes, you're going to go back to the building. We just need you to identify who these people are. And I was like, it's easy. They made an Iraqi MOD cards. I just got to go inside and, and, and figure out a way to get all these ID cards. So there was a lady worked in the Iraqi personal department. Um, she was not that good looking. <laughs> I, was a, I was an 18-year-old command sergeant major. I went in and I gave this lady the intention, but she was the one that processed these IDs. You're being smooth operator. There you go. And literally no, you're, I you're, went in. Terrorist was for my ass. You're smooth operator. <laughs> there, you're right there, man. <laughs> and it, it was espionage, man. That was. And as I went in and I just started talking to her and I said, you know, I said, I'm trying to figure out who these guys are. And I just need you to do me a favor without telling your bosses. Is there a way you can print? Uh, every little bit of application they filled in. I said, what do you have? And she said, oh, I got fingerprints. I got first name and last name and tribal name. And I got a picture. I wow. said, great. And this so is, this is, yeah, this is 2005. And then yeah. this is when you got recruited to U.S. intelligence. Yeah. Yep. And I do have to say for the audience, we're going to have to do a part two. We're going to have to leave it there. This is almost like the first half of Hamidi's yeah. history because we're going on Jesus, over yeah. two hours here. <laughs> oh my god. This, Dude, this is so... a great no, this is this is a great episode. And this is why yeah. I mean truly we love doing this show. Anytime. These are stories you're not gonna hear anywhere else other than like on your podcast and the other shows you've been on. And it's Anytime. why Chris and I often say, I mean, you turn on mainstream news and radio and you're gonna hear this the same story <laughs> yeah. that's going on right Anytime, now many and and there's just yeah people don't hear enough about what has gone on in yeah. iraq in afghanistan and these are the stories people love hearing so just to give uh once again your background here so it's the terroristwhisperer.com there's the book the terrorist whisperer the story of the pro-american and at the underscore terrorist underscore whisperer on Instagram. And we definitely have to do a part two. Yeah, I can yeah. tell we're only Anytime. halfway through the story here, but yeah. we would be going like four hours to cover all this. <laughs> yeah, I know. But this has been yeah. excellent. This has been Yeah, you're, you're talking to somebody who didn't have a deployment for 12 months. I was there for five <laughs> years. So as, as shorter as try to cut this, it's, it's kind of like you're talking about five years of your life. Well, and so. that's that's where the story, I, we, yeah. we will. We'll, we'll get more of those. Because actually, yeah, I, yeah, I, I want to know what happened to those fucking dirt bags. And it's funny yeah. when you started to talk about the OGA, I was like, yep, he's going to the villa, man. He's heading back. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember Hyper Street being, I was yeah. there with Blackwater four and oh five and, yeah and i remember fish street and we'd go around to wild street but then yeah. they started to figure that out so they'd hit wild street and it was yeah. like then you go through the train station it's like well fuck they're yeah. figuring that but i admire you man and i still remember my pleasure hyper yeah. street that was people don't realize they thought biop was the bad they thought the irish every, was like every um, everybody thought in that country that they were the worst place in the world i know that time. <laughs> <laughs> it is true but but i would we'll definitely have you back on because yeah. i didn't realize we're going god bless you yeah god bless you bro you're awesome <laughs> no this yeah, is anytime. this has been awesome these are stories yeah. like i said i've never heard and that this audience hasn't heard enough about and i think People yeah. don't realize how brutal Saddam's regime was, and they need yeah. to hear these stories to really know. Yeah. Uh, before before we uh, let you go, is there anything else you want to get out there really quickly before uh, we wrap yeah, this up? Um, so totally, follow my podcast. We are doing a podcast called The Black Side Show um, that covers uh, topics from the intelligence community and uh, some of the war stories we try to cover. You can find me on Instagram on the Terrorist Whisper, um, underscore the Terrorist Whisper, and uh, I'm on YouTube as the Black Side Show as my podcast. 
And, and you if are... you're not watching on YouTube, because we we <clears> mainly <throat> have uh, audio uh, listenership that everybody really listens on Apple Podcasts. If yeah. you go to our YouTube, you're shooting from the studio, and yeah, people are awesome. going to be like, "Man, you did a good job, <laughs> like making that studio and yeah. really setting the mood of that studio." And I would okay. assume when you have in studio guests, it's got to be a little intimidating yeah. walking yeah. in there. Yeah, usually if people don't pay me enough, I bring them here. <laughs> that, that's awesome. dude i'm i'm off i want to do one in your studio well one of these For days sure. i can get to and i and i was in your in your neighborhood uh a while ago but i didn't see you i know i uh i was in omaha and i didn't realize you lived there i i i, I in all dude i moved dude so i'm out of omaha now so oh okay you're, you're, you're gonna have to track me so i'm not telling you you're just gonna have to track me down like you did <laughs> <Yeah>. omaha <laughs> fucking use your yeah skills, i was dude. i was the keynote speaker for the for the uh, Nebraska National Guard, actually, on their military oh, ball. Yeah. Oh, nice. oh, good. Congratulate. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're. You're doing that. Cause I remember you were just yes. getting that started back in the yeah. day. And I think we got to have you more on the show because you got you and I can kind of talk about that, yeah. even that, that part of yeah. life, which was absolutely. Speaking, yeah. yeah, buddy. So I'm. Um, God, man, you're, you're awesome. Ex- and, and except you're, you were just better looking than I do. So I was better looking, yeah. but not anymore. <laughs> look at your hair, man. Look at the hair. I'm losing mine. You're still growing it and getting it all jailed <laughs> yeah. out. I, I, I need some Tonto's some, hair paste. Tonto hair right. paste. I'm giving yeah. you some hair paste, dude. But but we'll, we'll get you back on. But in, Anytime. And um, you, you stay safe, all right, my friend? Be you guys too. You stay safe. Have a good one, guys. All right, bro. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoparanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. quit.